Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to my good, bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better since I medicated me. I'm still not always sure whether I exist or what being a person even really is. But I figured out a long time ago that being alive is Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Good Bad Brain. I'm recording this intro with other people in the room. There's Jason and Kyle. So this will be a brief one. Um, This episode is the first episode of My Good Bad Brain in which we've had a mental health professional join us, which, you know, I know the whole point of this podcast has long been that everyone's an authority on their own experience and I want to talk to regular people about regular stuff. But Nick, uh, Dr. Nicholas Barr, Dr. Nicholas Barr. Nick's uh, been a, 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 an acquaintance in my life for some time, so I guess maybe that's why it made it easy, because it was just somebody I kind of knew through that context and didn't seem that weird to talk to him. But also, his uh, specific area of um, of, uh, of study and, and, and treat, treating people and whatnot is around trauma. Uh, especially like you know post traumatic stress disorder in uh, vets like combat veterans and uh, homeless youth populations and people have been through some really hard things and uh, so I really wanted to sit down and talk to him about trauma this idea this word that gets thrown all around a lot in culture these days and that I use a lot and everyone uses a lot and just talk to him about like what it means and uh you know what constitutes quote-unquote trauma and some of the stuff that's in the DSM and you know versus uh his personal opinions about I don't know dealing with that idea and our discomforts and our um adverse conditions in our own lives and uh, it's a wonderful, I, this is like one of my favorite ones we've done. And I know I probably say that often, but I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, when we, when we, you know, obviously going into it, there's this barrier immediately. We're like, well, this guy, this guy talks about trauma um, in populations that have gone through real shit, like real tough shit, you know, the worst things you can imagine. I mean, homeless youth are definitely exposed to the worst possible conditions you could imagine. And a war zone is the worst possible condition you can imagine. So I think a thing happens a lot for some of us, uh, me, I don't know about a lot of people probably though, that, um, 
where you go like, oh, well, I don't have real, I don't have real problems. My problems aren't there. That's not true. And basically, I mean, long story short, big surprise, doing that doesn't help you at all. You know, just telling yourself that your bad feelings don't make sense or aren't as bad as other people have does literally nothing to help fix them. And so I wanted to explore that with him and asked uh, about that a lot. And he went into it. We talked a lot about um, stuff that kind of, I, you know, I always think like the people who work at the highest and hardest levels of a certain thing always have something to teach us that'll help those of us who might have lower versions of that thing, you know? And, uh, and just how like you can't even really say things are like lower or higher and this idea that there's an objective reality is not real. That there is a, an empirical reality that we can agree, agree on or talk about, um, but that uh, an objective experience of reality is not something that anyone can ever say is a thing or not. And that your subjective experience as a person is um, incredibly valid always. It's real and it's something you're going through and um, that there are also things that can happen bad to you, traumas, that are out of your control and they will affect you and you didn't deserve it, but they happen to you and that that's sad and that a kind of upsetting, unfair truth about that is that if you want to fix them you are the only one who can and that it will be your responsibility to do now but that the hopeful thing at the end of that is that you can uh and i think that's sort of like a beautiful i don't know that's kind of the nutshell my my biggest takeaway from the uh, the long conversation you're going to listen to now um but anyway, I'm gonna I'm not gonna introduce this one too long. Uh, I think I just want to get into it because it is a longer conversation. I, I've been kind of trying to tighten up this this uh, pod, you know. If you're enjoying my good bad brain, check us out at uh, Patreon.com/slash my good bad brain. That stuff is uh, really really dope. The people who support there, or just like write us a review and share us and tell your friends and things like that. The pod's uh, hey, it's going a little bit. Just... Anyway. That's it. On with the show with my dear, amazing uh, friend, Dr. Nicholas Barr. Uh, Let's do it. Bye. That's the right trajectory. (laughs) Um, All right. We are recording now. So anything you say is on the fucking record. All right. Cool. Um, Will you introduce yourself? This I will say really quick that this is uh, for everybody listening. This is the first time I think I've had a true like mental health professional on here, which um, you know I, I I've always set out that this podcast my good bad brain is like that we all have good bad brains or at least those of us who listen probably everybody and uh, and I'm interested in people are authorities on experience and how people are getting through, but um, you have known on and off in sort of like strange coincidences for years yeah. uh, through physical spaces mostly I think we met at CrossFit first. Mm-hmm. And we did some kickboxing together, even at CrossFit, which Mm -hmm. was, uh, I just say that because that came then from there, that combat sport, you showed up at the same jujitsu gym I go to one day. Well, you recommended it to me. Was that how? What happened? Yeah. That's how I found it. Was it online or how through Instagram or something? (sighs) Yeah. I think through Instagram. All right. right. Well, killer. So, well, I should have fucking realized that, but, um, I've always liked you. I've always liked your vibe. We both were like motorcycle dudes, Mm -hmm. uh, for a period of time. You still are a motorcycle dude. And, uh, 
Anyway, you also, I'm going to let you talk about it now, but you also work in trauma a lot, which I think is also an interesting connection to the combat sports stuff, which anybody who listens to this podcast knows I'm always talking about jujitsu for my mental health. But um, now, Nick, please go ahead and talk about who you are. Okay, so um, I'm uh, Dr. Nick Barr. Um, Doctor! I know, it's weird to say that. It is weird. Yeah, it's fucking weird for me too. Um, So yeah, I have a PhD in social work um, and primarily at this point in my life and career, I'm a researcher. So I study um, groups that are at high risk for traumatic experiences like military veterans and um, homeless youth and young adults. Those are kind of the two populations I work most with. Mm. Um, And I'm also a psychotherapist. And before I got my PhD, I was a full-time clinical social worker for the LA County Department of Mental Health, working again with groups at high risk for trauma and my kind of clinical specialty was this treatment called dialectical behavior therapy, which is a mindfulness-based intervention mm. for people with borderline well, personality disorder. That does interest dialectics. Uh, is that dialectical different than dialectics as a like, it's, or is it related as like a political theory? You know what I mean? Um, it's not the. I mean the the point isn't of, it like a Marxist thing? Dialectics. Yes, um, but the the um, uniting thread is like rather than taking. Um, like looking at issues in black and white, it's integrating uh, extreme perspectives, essentially. Got it. Because the idea is it's like things in dialogue with each other. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. okay, okay, gotcha, right. okay. Uh, no, please continue. Yeah, so, yeah. so it would be something like oftentimes what you'll see in that uh, patient population is you'll see like in an interpersonal relationship, somebody s- valued really highly in the beginning and then really devalued. So it's like, you're fucking amazing. I love hanging oh. out with you. But then something happens and now you're a fucking piece of shit and I hate you. So dialectical behavior would be like integrating those extremes. Yeah, right. So can we validate the feel? Like, okay, let's try to validate your emotional experience around those points of view. But is there a way for us to like synthesize? Okay, maybe in some context, I really feel good about you and you meet a lot of my needs. But then in another context, I feel really disappointed. And can we like arrive at a kind of integrated middle path Hmm. way of looking at that that's interesting i even uh that's that's a resonant pattern for me too just as uh, somebody who has adhd and as i learn more about adhd especially in adults because i didn't get diagnosed till like a year ago i always had a suspicion but um my dad was diagnosed with it and other things and he took so many Hmm. different medications that i think were like too much and overdone and i was just so wary of it but it has changed my life in positive ways and reading about uh, an ADHD pattern that exists in um, in romantic relationships, they say that's common for the non-ADHD partner is wondering like why during courtship they're so fucking in love with you and so like, oh, and then uh, once you start dating or get married or whatever that they kind of like turn into these like they don't uh if you can feel bad for the non-hd adhd partner because they're like they must not love me as much anymore and right. it actually has to just do with a mechanism of like how your dopamine works basically well and, stimulation and like, by novelty is like a yeah you know where well because what are the thing for me it's been important to like learn basically in my relationships back and forth we we like i guess in dialectic kind of about it uh that we on that there's a way to communicate like Oh no, I still love you just as much. I just, I doesn't occur to me to show you in certain ways. Uh, and it's not like, I think a lot of ADHD is difficult. Uh, for me, it's been because like, like things that we attach moral values to, um, 
are actually not. They're like mechanical. For me, it's like mm-hmm. mechanical. It's not mm-hmm. like I don't care. I just doesn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's hard. That's a nuanced thing to go like, no, no, I'm not an asshole. I'm just dumb. Or like, <laughs> right. I just don't think about it. We're right. like, which I mean, I know kind of sounds like I'm an asshole, but ooh. But anyway, trying to me get better at that, but also your partner is like learning how to moderate their assumption about what things mean. Yeah, right. I mean, and this is, I mean, this kind of like loops back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, which is like emotion regulation. And that's really the core of that dialectical behavior therapy, DBT. Is that the core, would you say, of like what you do in like sort of trauma studies in general? Yeah. So what I'm... I've made that term up by the way, trauma. You never said anything like I do trauma studies. No, but... well, I mean, my that that's a good description for what yeah. I do. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, basically what I'm interested in is risk and protective factors for mental and behavioral health outcomes. So for example, yeah, like we talk a lot about trauma just kind of in, um, I don't know, it's like in the zeitgeist right now, but what kind of the more precise term is adverse experiences because not everyone who has an adverse experiences goes on to have trauma symptoms, right? Yeah. So is that just, okay, I will say, let me just like bullet point some things that I think I'm hoping to cover in this maybe. Yeah, yeah. In, in an informal way because I didn't like make a list or think about it, but whatever. That's that's my good bet. That's how I do this fucking thing. Cool. Uh, one is like, I would love to get into that. Yes, what you're starting to get on now. What What is Trump? Because that is a word that's thrown around a lot. I throw it around a lot. I have a sort of understanding that I've associated with it. Yeah. But I, like understanding what that is, uh, that's one thing I'd like to talk about. Um, and then I think w- why some people get post-trauma stress and some don't and uh and then ways to heal with it those are the big three things i guess i'm interested in but okay yeah so So let's talk first about trauma yeah i throw trauma around a lot i have a basic adverse experiences already helps to like make it understandable more i think um and I guess also I kind of want to talk about this question. You use this word valid and that's a word that I am have an evolving relationship with. Um, it's very important to contextualize what we mean by that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's do that. Let's say first, uh, let's do, tra- let's define trauma and define valid or validation. Sure. Okay. So, so there are a couple ways to go, but let's start kind of with what the DSM, the diagnostic yeah. and statistical manual of mental disorders says about trauma. Well, actually let me just back up a little bit. So, There is, I think, maybe a misunderstanding that we have a very good idea of what trauma is and and what PTSD is and how to treat it, and that that is not supported by the research literature. We have an evolving understanding of trauma and PTSD. So, for example, the most recent iteration of the DSM, DSM DSM-5, which Mm. came out a couple of years ago, there is an entirely new symptom cluster of PTSD that wasn't there in the DSM-4. So in the DSM-4, the, the, the three symptom clusters of PTSD were hyperarousal, avoidance, and re-experiencing. That's interesting, that word hyperarousal. Man, this is cool because I, I do have a psychiatrist, and, but when we talk about it, like getting to talk to you in this way almost like more as pals and stuff. Yeah. Hyper out like, uh, and I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'll try not to derail into personal experience no, too no. much. But um, ADHD. One of the things they say is emotional hyper arousal. This internal hyper arousal. And and when I first read that, I felt like I fucking started crying when I read this like article about things because I was like, yeah, I never felt like. Sometimes I'll it'll be a joke that I'm like a Labrador, but mostly it wasn't external hyperactivity factors. Sometimes I'm I'm more often quite dazed and feel very distant and numb. And my experience of it is because inside everything is so fucking crazy. And when I read that emotional hyper arousal, so you're saying that yeah. was that well, was that uh, also makes a lot of sense what you're talking about. What does the 
kind of depersonalized or dissociative processes yeah. in response to feeling overstimulated and overwhelmed. Okay. Yeah. And, and actually the fourth new PTSD criteria is this cognitive emotional numbing, almost like a depression oh. symptom cluster. So that that's so just telling me one more time. There was uh so hyper arousal, yeah. which is like, that's the kind of traditional stereotype really of, a, fucking crazy of a vet. Yeah. Like jumping out of your skin when yeah. you hear a noise behind you, just the body being in fight or flight. Oh, okay. So it, these aren't uh, initiating fact. These are like things that suggest you have a PTSD these are response. These are symptoms. Okay. Yeah. So, Got it. So hyperarousal would be like hypervigilance, like always being on guard. Mm-hmm. Um, re-experiencing would be things like intrusive thoughts or memories. Uh, Got it. Or like smelling something. And, would and would that be the quote-unquote flashback? Exactly okay. right. Avoidance is um, could literally be trying not to go to places or be around situations that remind you of the trauma. So, for example, oh. if you were mugged in a parking lot, not wanting to go to the grocery store and park... Mm. Um, that would be an example. Yeah. Not wanting to go out at night. Um, and then uh, the cognitive emotional numbing is things That's like... That's the new fourth one. Correct. Yeah. Those are things like depressed mood, tough time concentrating, feeling like things aren't real, or you're kind of swimming through the world underwater. Getting freaked out because you're describing like my life. <laughs> uh, basically, the first, the, the first and the last one especially. Yeah. I don't really have... I don't think I have much of a and i i couldn't even i mean i have ideas but anyway keep going well so okay so those are kind of the four symptom clusters but again that fourth one is new so again reflects Mm -hmm. our evolving understanding but with all dsm disorders other criteria is that it has these symptoms have to interfere with your life in terms of your relationships your ability to yeah is that like that's like um i always associated uh I, I did some like uh, Al-Anon and I've, I've had friends mm-hmm. in 12 step programs and stuff like that. And I found them useful in the past, but um, I always went by that like Dr. Drew definition of addiction as like when it starts to uh, all, like harm you and your relationships. That is consistent with the DSM criteria, okay. right? You would, you're, you're technically wouldn't for, for every disorder, you would not be able to technically make a diagnosis if it didn't interfere with the person's life i feel like that's so tricky in our day and age especially in like capitalist societies because like if you're a uh if you have wall street banker doing coke every day making millions of dollars people are like he's great he's fine right which i think leads us to have like some of the politicians that we have because they (laughs) they reflect the values of like so many americans who think they're like fine because like our society is set up to like I don't know. I think reward, like reward. Yeah. Yeah. And like <laughs> yeah. unwellness. And, you know, I even think there's something like, I don't know. I'm always thinking about this. Uh, and I'm sure you'll have thoughts about this because of who you work with. I mean, with soldiers and, and homeless youth, uh, do, like trauma stuff, I'm sure you interact a lot with like a, aggression and aggression as a protective instinct and that kind of a thing. But like this sort of like always grind mentality that like is popular in memes and whatever. And I, I, I'm always like, yeah, I'm everyday parada. Dude, yeah, everyday pohara. Yeah, that's uh, exactly that's that. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm uh, the reason I'm saying I have a weird relationship with it as I do find it useful. Again, jujitsu. Sometimes it's really I do talk to myself in in mean, uh, coachy voices like, "Come on, bitch! Come on, bitch! One more fucking rep!" Mm-hmm. You know that kind of thing, and it helps me. Um, well, this is the dialectical piece. Okay, right? is that sometimes to a certain extent, and it also connects. We'll kind of like loop this concept in if you want to talk about who gets PTSD and who doesn't Yes, is that um, there's a dialectic at work here, right? Because without some kind of stress, 
and difficulty, it's unlikely that you'll perform very well. But if you're constantly stre- under stress and in difficulty, it's mm-hmm. also unlikely you'll perform very well. Yeah. So the question then is like, okay, how do we reach a dialectic there where we're stressed, we're, you know, pushing ourselves to perform, but we're also doing the self-care thing. Right? Does that, so, I mean, cause another thing about that, that I feel like uh, is interesting to ask a question about, and I think this is something that I thought this earlier was a bullet point. I forgot to say it was like mainstream medicine is fucking always way behind on nutrition for for instance so like like how long i feel like still you get like this food pyramid right of like grains at the bottom <laughs> yeah, and this whole right. thing that we know is not really very good for people we know right. there were like political influence or why that happened right maybe so, for some people and not for others right so like, well, exactly i my big thing is like everybody's different but the idea that you would invalidate different science you know what i mean because you're like that's right. not what i had and just not just that but like also the lack of preventative medicine it feels like in the medical field i'm just using that as a as an analogy i guess as a, or an analogous sort of thing to the dsm and and mental right. wellness studies like even that idea of like creating a dialectical where you're under stress so you're performing but also um Obviously, if you have a job or something that is that's crucial for it, like right, like like a first responder or something like that, yes. then that's necessary. But are we? I feel like as a society, and maybe it's our puritanical roots, maybe it's just capitalism in general. Like who knows? Like, but that there is this. Maybe it's just fucking Catholicism. I don't know. Whatever Christianity loves to exploit this thing, mm. but that like unwellness discomfort seems to have like a value of its own and on the one hand i under like because i do have dreams and i want to whatever i i like be moving forward and growth and discomfort helps that the carrot or the stick or whatever mm-hmm. but also part of me is like why are we telling everybody that they have to fucking do anything and this maybe gets to the question of what valid means like to me a, a big message i feel like i always want to communicate just to the individual human beings in my life is that they don't they don't have to earn their space on this fucking planet Mm -hmm. that like you are entitled a word that feels dirty to like space respect the breath that you have Mm -hmm. to eat to have medicine if you want to get political but like that there's kind of so many people i know especially successful people have like this um shame or something about existing this like apology that you're taught from a young age that you have Mm. to fucking earn to have a space (laughs) in this world and especially i think when you get into like mental health stuff where like some people just like don't function the same or you know Mm -hmm. athletics a lot of us don't feel bad that we're never gonna be fucking some superstar whatever whatever pick your sport and pick your favorite athlete because we just do it for our own thing or whatever. But I do, I still feel like this thing trickles down that like, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm not enough. And anyway, that pressure to earn, I guess what I'm in my weird roundabout way is saying like, even that idea, how does the system feel? Like, I feel like a, a often like a, a metric of if you're well or not is like, are you productive? Do you know what yeah, I'm saying? I do. Yeah. Absolutely. And so like, where does, where does that question land with you and with the established academia of like, yeah. is that what we're trying to do is well, make everybody productive? You well, know, we, we, I think the word that most closely aligns with this concept that you're talking about yeah. is functionality. So, okay. We talk about whether someone is functional, but, but what that is a proxy for is like, okay, basically like a couple of domains right one would be like work are they able to work so embedded in this notion of functionality is the the idea that Mm -hmm. you should work and that you have to be able to work yeah and i do kind of go back and forth on that i feel like again this is dialectic i suppose but like that 
I do kind of find in, a, in like my newest, not even newest, my whole fucking life. I feel like the samurai archetype is the thing that you yeah. aspire to and that well, there is some virtue in work. I mean, look, and even before, you know, the, the DSM is, you know, a product of, I guess, the current philosophy of science that we have but this idea of not being able to be happy without work and love is a is a psychodynamic freudian notion i mean hmm. like those are the two things work, work and, and love work and love you know and that's really I've interesting i've actually not met anybody who is happy not feeling at all productive you know i've met people oh, sorry nitpicky will you do, try to talk straight? oh sorry, like, yeah. sorry i might cut this part out but probably not i'm pretty slow anyway sure. not to just interrupt you i just want to sound yeah good. so i mean um work and love yeah so it's possible to i guess to be happy without doing anything productive i've just never met people like that yeah and sometimes you get people who are like fuck it i don't want to do anything but they're not really right. happy you know i think that's true and i, I it's weird though because I feel like I meet people who need to learn how to dissociate their sense of value and worth from what they do or accomplish. It's dialectics again. I mean, yeah. if your if your self concept is I mean, totally contingent on your external validation from work performance and productivity, that's probably not great, you know. Right. But if your own work and productivity is either not there at all or you feel totally devalued in that domain, it's difficult to imagine feeling happy and it's similar with love it doesn't have to be romantic or sexual love it can be just friendships you know having yes. a network of support and again there's a lot of evidence to suggest that those two things even though we define them a little differently now work and love are really critical domains um that sounds right to me there's i saw this like uh i feel like it's really easy to get to be a documentary these days you know they're like so it's like <laughs> always take it with a grain or whatever but um but also try to hear truth wherever you hear it. Who knows? But there was this documentary I saw a while ago called Happy. And the idea of it was they were trying yeah. to... How do you feel about this? Do you know I, about this documentary? I, 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 you'll have to refresh my All memory. Right. Well, the broad stroke thing of it was like that I took away and I thought was really interesting was they were trying to find out like happiness quotients around the world and w different countries oh, right, and like right, right. what makes Bhutan different... was like the... Yeah, I think, yeah. But like the, the idea is like what's common to people who are happy and what, you know, what are there. And uh, broad strokes of what I remember that really struck me were like, one was something involving like physical, like adrenaline response, like that you do things that excite you and make mm -hmm. you happy, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But another one that really struck me was um, multi-generational communities yeah. that being around old people and babies and people who are your own... Uh, and I'm Obviously, I'm speaking from the perspective of like a 30 something, you know, mm -hmm. like vaguely youngish middle person mm -hmm, still. Mm -hmm. But um, but that there's something to that. And I have found I think there's a weird thing going on in our culture these days. Like I have this roommate who I've lived with for like uh, three, four years, but we've been friends for like eight years. It's me and this other guy. We're both straight guys. And sometimes I'm like and we're in our 30s and we didn't have kids and we yeah. didn't do the thing that like our parents did. And, right. you know. But part of it seems to be because like, like there is some function served in terms of like support and love by yeah. me and my buddy who like we cohabitate and yes. we support each other. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that there's something in these, uh, maybe, maybe just more and more we're going to see it too. Like sort of, we were talking about my living situation, which is like, I live in a four unit building yeah. and I'm upstairs with my best friend. My other best friend is downstairs and my brother's just moving in downstairs, but this kind of communal and we have our private spaces. We don't have to like be in a farm room together. Right. Uh, and <laughs> right. Want to kill each other one yurt but that it like does create a kind of support that um sometimes i'm like i'm like is this why we haven't 
like why we haven't entered into like quote unquote like normal monogamous long term things already. You know what I mean? When people would pair off in their young twenties yep. and start having kids otherwise. Um, but yeah, and I don't think I don't question it as a good or bad thing necessarily. I mean, I think it's good in terms of like well, the marriage thing. But like, uh, but what you were saying, there's different kinds of love and support that does feel like an important part to being happy. And that yeah. there's, and especially uh, with men, I think in our culture, friendship and and um, a theory that I have, I've thought about a lot, is that I feel like. And it's basically toxic masculinity, but like standard masculine, like the happiness that is available to you is are two kinds are like, are you fuckable and are you rich? And if you don't have like those two things, if people don't want to fuck you and you don't have a lot of money, which equals power, basically, Mm -hmm. then you're a valueless man. Um, And and learning that there are other ways to feel love and value has Mm -hmm. been like. I don't know, important thing for me and I think in the world. But anyway, I've talked for a long time. Please respond no. to any of that. There wasn't a real <laughs> question in there. No, but. no, I, I mean, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? That uh, those two domains are really important. And that those two domains are important for happiness, but that what that looks like practically evolves over time and in response to social conditions. Oh, right? well, you know, actually, okay, so that actually, maybe that was the connection. Sometimes I have to decode my own thoughts. But work and love is like, in a perverted version, becomes rich and fuckable. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, those right; those would be kind of the products of of work and love. Right? Yeah, and it, and but like, but like, it seems like I don't know. Maybe there's something more important about deriving value from like the process and internal satisfaction, and and um, I don't know. I think also like being present for what you're actually experiencing versus like an aspirational. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that there is this, you know, the options available to men, at least in our kind of contemporary right social context, are limited um you know it's funny there's like an observable um increase in lifespan among men who are married and part of why Mm. people think that's the case not for women who are married but for men and part of the reason why scholars think that's the case is that when men get married they then have access to women's social networks and social networks are Hmm. very protective right the density and quality of social connections is really important for health yeah Um, like loneliness is as bad for your life expectancy as smoking cigarettes in some studies. So, I mean, it's very, Fuck, yeah, yeah. I feel like you're also seeing some of that in the zeitgeist, uh, in internet culture with like the whole like incel thing and Ab- like just like the absolute, increase in like lone gunman thing. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting problem, I think. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, this is all to say that this social connection piece is critically important. So again, to, to kind of get back to this idea of functionality as right. a criteria for a diagnosis, if people are doing okay and work in love, even if they have some of these problems, I mean, that defines like a vast swath of society probably. Mm-hmm. It's not until... Vast. Yeah. Fucking vast. It's like yeah. the whole pie, right? It's, it's Totally. And I also a, think we're, I, you know, that thought continues, I guess, about the current iteration of work and, and that's going to fuck me up because that's such a simple binary to hang on to. But that like, uh, even like the love thing I was thinking about, like yeah. how people, um, I think, you know, Connection, if you do the apps, meaning, I mean, if you right. like do the apps, it does right. this weird commodifying of a whole human being. We're very quickly, you switch. Like if you met those people in real life, like, uh, you know, 
ninety percent of them, you you would you wouldn't go through them like that. You'd right. you'd be demanded to be like, oh, you'd be more interested because they're in front of you. But like, he turns you into this thing of like, nah, 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 uh, maybe nah. Uh, right. You know? I, I'm actually I'm I can't wait until the first studies come out using. I mean, some of that data has been used just to see like who's most attractive to who, which is like very simple correlational studies. But it'll be very interesting to see how and if that affects relationship behaviors yeah, like sense um, of like wellness and, or whatever and we don't know yet um although there was a, a good study that came out recently showing that limiting your social media um mm-hmm. consumption to 10 minutes a day lowers depression and anxiety scores among that, college students so. i will say i uh i purposefully i disconnected facebook for a while i turned it back on but i don't have it on my phone so i barely check it yeah. And Twitter, I unfollowed everyone. I was like following the thousands of whatever. Yeah. And um, I th- realized it was changing the way I think. Uh, yeah. Like thinking in hot takes, thinking in reactionary ways instead of like, and, and quickly aligning on the spectrum with similar opinions, yeah. um, polarized well, opinions. We, and I mean, that's the thing. We just don't know yet how it structures cognition because cognition used yeah. to be structured by, I mean, again, this is like, it's a little out of my um I know, but thanks for talking about it anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, people don't know, but a lot of what peop, uh, scholars think may account for our um, our big, powerful brains is the ability is that it th- that evolved in the context of complicated social interaction, and you see this with primates, right? Yeah. So these complicated social interactions, where you're observing behavior, you're responding to behavior, you're having to manage in your right. mind a bunch of complex relationships, like now that even our even just like tiny microfacial yeah, ticks and things, ex- exactly. And so now that our we've outsourced a lot of our relationship management to software. Fuck. It, yeah. It's I'm just curious what that does to our cognition well i I thought about that a lot uh i think like Werner herzog was the first person i heard say like he believes that the invention like the internet is is more significant than fire in many ways like in terms of or maybe the wheel but but like fundamentally shifting like the path of or or as significant and i kind of think he's right like the interconnectedness uh like i believe will probably never unless we just all decide to kill ourselves but like We'll probably never see a war the same way like World War One and Two were fought because our economies are so interconnected by the webs of the internet that like you would destroy the whole world economy if one major power failed completely. You know what I mean? Like yeah. firebombing. The Dresden oligarchs or make money in easier ways now, so yes. they, don't, they don't need to do that. Right? Exactly. That's ex- that's so fucking good. That's I'm gonna steal that. Uh, or like, but then also the way we're thinking, uh, the way we interact with love, the way we interact with like our own belief about. Like, I think there's a big difference between a point of view and opinions. And like, there's like a lot of people thinking they have a point of view, mm-hmm. regurgitating opinions and the cleverest version of the opinion that they saw mm-hmm. and re- recalculating that into their own quote unquote version. And uh, I don't know, it's weird to think that it's such a Petri dish that like there was no, there's no like regulation or like, what is this going to do to us? It's just here now. Like these fucking phones, which were cyborgs now, basically the way you just said, we're outsourcing these processes to software. Also is memory. Like, we're, we're outsourcing yes. memory. I mean, phones, phone numbers. Y- yeah. That simply, I mean, even God, I'm going to mangle this, but you know, there was like, um, in Thucydides, I think Pericles knows the names of the entire Athenian army, you know? Like, yeah. And memorized all of those names. And fuck, I can't remember my own phone number half of the time, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I'm turning. I'm just fixing our levels. While we no, sure. Going. Yeah. So, but I mean, anyway, this is this notion of functioning, which is like a criteria for a diagnosis in DSM. But, yeah. but what I think 
the takeaway is is that we don't understand trauma that well. We don't really understand that well. I mean, we we know what some risk and protective factors are, but it's very much still a topic under investigation. Do you think related to that thing we're talking about with um this way we're like rewiring our brains and interaction with the internet and stuff like that. And especially like a lot of people who listen to this, like we don't know each other in real life, but we have some kind of, uh, you know, I have emotional connections to podcasting people or, yeah. you know, they impact my life. There are things that happen. Um, I wonder how the virtual world like might be creating new adverse conditions also like this, like can you have a traumatizing event in a like virtual way? Okay. So this is, why don't we talk about this? Because this is the, so I, I talked about those four um, symptom clusters of PTSD, the yeah. hyper arousal, re-experiencing avoidance, and now this cognitive, cognitive, emotional numbing yeah. kind of depressive cluster, but, but criteria. So those are symptom criteria, but the, the criteria a is that you have to have had an adverse experience. Keep in mind, this is in DSM and I don't subscribe to DSM as like the arbiter of truth and all things. Gotcha. It's useful to have knowledge of this and it's important to have knowledge of it because it's like how insurance companies agree to fund treatment, et cetera, et cetera. But, Got it. but I think there are a lot of other ways to look at things. Um, however, it is important to understand, um, I think DSM criteria, but the, the criteria A is that you have to have had some experience where you felt as if your life was in danger oh. or the life of someone, you witnessed the life of someone else being in danger. Is that like a mirror neuron thing? But like being so close to somebody else, you're like experiencing it almost like um, as they that, do? That, I mean, that's kind of beyond the thinking of DSM, but yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense to me um, that, that you could, exp- that that might be a mechanism in the brain of how closely yeah. observing somebody's someone else's um, experience yeah. could be problematic. So ho- like horror, like unmanageable, unregulatable emotion, horror, fear, shame, and disgust hmm. as a result of feeling that your own life is in danger that someone else's is. Specifically in hmm. the DSM, it says criteria A cannot be witnessing something like watching a terrorist event on TV or uh, can't be, cannot be. So that's kind that's of the core criteria. But then there's also this idea of vicarious trauma, which has received, there's a lot of controversy around this idea, but it's receiving more uh, attention in the literature. Vicarious trauma is like what a therapist or caretaker experiences hearing trauma narratives right. again and again. Or I know some people, I have some family members that like work in like public defender's office and they yes. see this fucking evidence all day and horrible, horrible shit. And you know, I, I'm kind of the, the, to me, the, the jury's out. I mean, certainly people who, well, I mean, there's like people who like, right, right. Like, uh, like YouTube or whatever. There's like people who like, they've, they've read you articles, watch horrible shit or police officers who, like our prosecuting child pornography. That's what I mean. There's like people have to sit sh- in a room and watch this shit all day yeah, long. That's going to fuck you up. It's right. going to do something to you. Yeah. You know, and I know just myself, there's only been a couple. I've done a, seen a bunch of trauma patients, but there've been one or two trauma narratives that were very disturbing to me. And it's only times that I went home and couldn't sleep. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, but going through the treatment process with them, you know, my, the tiny discomfort in comparison to theirs that I, who, sure. that I felt went away as the treatment went on as theirs did, you know? Well, maybe that would, um, God, there's so many things. I want. Everything's giving me like a million new thoughts, but I think that dovetails nicely into the idea of like validation. Yeah. So, so, okay. So that would be to kind of wrap up those symptom criteria, um, questions in the DSM issue. But, but when I talk about validation, like in the DBT context, the dialectical behavior therapy yeah. context, what I mean is, to find something like somebody may Can feel pause for a second. Yeah. Dialectical behavior therapy, that thing, does that, is that just like 
when we when we talk about like talk therapy, is that generally the um, that's what that's technically called? So it's under the, different. It's under the larger umbrella of cognitive therapy or cognitive okay. behavioral therapy. Is cognitive is that different than like when somebody says talk therapy? Uh, it depends on what they mean by that. I don't, okay. I mean, I don't actually. I don't like that term because I don't know what people mean. Some Got it. some clinicians say I, I just do talk therapy, but what that means is they don't really do anything. They kind of just do what they feel like and mm-hmm. and. I mean, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think that if you're if you're doing okay and you just want someone to listen to your problems and kind of give you some feedback, yeah, cool. Then just do you know whatever if right. you like the therapist. But if someone comes in and do they you are, think that's a good thing to do, or do you think it, it's like navel gazing? Or I, I like, think it totally depends. It's, yeah, it totally depends on the person. Got it. And how it affects their functioning. Copy. Um, but I don't think that's responsible if someone comes in with a serious problem, like with PTSD. I don't think we know Got that it. just sitting and talking doesn't fix the problem. I mean, we know that. Interesting. So, yeah, we don't, you know. To help? Uh, not really. I mean. Really? There are two gold standards for PTSD mm-hmm. treatment. They are prolonged exposure I mean, there's a lot of controversy in this field too. And cognitive processing therapy, which are, and there are some emerging other ones. There's some somatic kind of body based that are very interesting and they work well for people who have like one traumatic event and Mm -hmm. one adverse experience that results in trauma symptoms and otherwise have a pretty, um, Hmm. like what we'd call pretty good life. They work not well at all for, for example, military combat trauma. They just don't work that well. Which, which ones were those? That's, uh. Prolonged exposure and cognitive Doesn't processing therapy. Combat. EMDR is another yeah. one. EMDRs. I learned some EMDR stuff that really fucking helped yep. help me. But yeah, th- a lot of people really like yeah. it because it doesn't force you to do re-experiencing, which is. Oh, oh hey, dude, I'm re- I'm doing a podcast. Miles? No, it's okay. Are you good? <laughs> All right, sorry. Uh, we're gonna go for like probably another hour. All right. Um, tops. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I'm enjoying this is fun yeah. for me. Uh usually people are falling asleep at this point, so I'm glad you're enjoying this. This is I this is extremely <laughs> my shit. This is but me EMDR, too. the like a basic shit I learned like this tap bilateral stimulation tapping yep. and these yep. I got some of these buzzers that are sometimes I'll put in my pockets that help calm me down. Look, I think I mean just like ba- bottom line, I think people should do whatever helps them. Yeah. You know, so and you should try a bunch of things. I think I liked it too because of what you're talking about. Like I had gone to therapy before and I I really like to have tools. Like even when yes. I got physical therapy, we were talking about like your rib popping out, yes. I have shoulder things. Yep. I, I would, I only went to physical therapy like one day a week for six weeks, but it's cause I'm very of the mindset of like, show me things and 100%. I will go do them. Right. Right. Te- teach me to fish. So, and, and also having like a practical, um, I don't know. I, I do think self-taught there's all these different things and tools. And I always say like, use my tools or I use my tools or use your tools, but I think you got to figure out what your own tools are. And, it's it's also though I think it's hard. It, um, it's nice to have a, prof- a therapist who is a professional who actually gives yes. me tools. Well, he- here's the other piece, and again, this is dialectics. I think it's really important to trial and error test things that you want to do to improve yourself, and it's also really fucking important to consult experts. There there is a reason yeah. why people develop expertise. And it's yeah. the product of a fuck ton of work and learning. That makes so sense. So I think yeah. we need to respect both of those perspectives. And I mean, bias coming from a part of the system, <laughs> Mister yeah, right. Doctor. Totally, totally. Yeah, no, but sure. But uh, 
but that being said, so I think like talk therapy. For- I, I, I will say really quick, I was being a silly joke there. I do think there's like an anti-intellectualism that yeah. seems to accompany well, populism we all- and nationalism when it's totally. on the rise that and, I don't mean to. And I know. also don't think we should blindly trust experts because science is an evolving process and right. things that we th- people used to do something called debriefing after a traumatic experience where they would immediately go into exposure right afterwards because we're like, oh, exposure is helpful. Yeah. That made people worse. So, sure. you know, that's, that's why so it's a dialectic. Fucking, yeah, that's uh, I, I do think that's uh, important to think about, too. The, the idea of dialectics, um, I think when I first read about it as a political idea, I, I do think is really profound to think about in general, because just just the getting being able to wrap your head around like that um, extremes don't exist. And it's like seems to be like our simian brain who wants to say like on off white black and that and it's everything's just a yes, quote unquote spectrum. That's a much more efficient way for your brain to process stimulus like good bad right but it doesn't reflect reality which is like that truly like it's this constantly flowing infinite factors that create reality and this is why these third wave psychotherapies that involve mindfulness incorporate this buddhist sorry to expose everyone to that but they incorporate this why is that well because it's like a secular therapy but that's grown out of a buddhist practice yeah um, but that's so funny. That's I mean, just I don't know. That'll also get into the question of valid. But like this idea that like this way of thinking is, but this way of thinking is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And since I, we've taken the exact same thing and called it this, now it's okay. But right. it is just Buddhism. I, I know, right? Th- this notion that there is not an inherent reality. That yeah. that inherent reality is. Uh, convenient illusion that saves our brains a lot of expense um dude that's a great that's crazy and yeah so so okay so but to get back to this idea of of valid so when i say valid like in a in a dbt context what i mean is finding something in what the person is saying that makes sense not that so for example let's say i came over here and i was like and let's imagine your car's parked out front and my car is parked behind it and there's this big dent in the back of your bumper mm-hmm. and you're like, fuck dude, you hit my car. And then you yell at me for a couple of minutes. Right. Okay. Well, your anger is valid. It makes sense that you're angry because you assume that I hit your car. So right. your anger makes sense. Somebody fucking hit your car. You're angry about it. It makes sense. Yeah. But the collection of facts that you base that emotion on with respect to me is not valid because I didn't hit your car. Right. If I didn't, right. right. I didn't hit your car. So, I can validate your anger without necessarily validating the reality claim right. that it's coming from. And so that's the critical piece. I but think. that does seem like so crucial to, to progressing that like, if you don't validate the thing that's valid, they get hung up on that. And they're like, why are you telling me fucking my real experience? Like yes. you said, there's no one reality. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. So it's learning how to validate someone's mm. internal emotional experience and fig because it does make sense. Emotions, I mean, I am an I'm an empiricist, so I think that observable reality has causes and conditions. This is also the Buddhist perspective that there is no, there's nothing observable in the world that did not proceed from causes and conditions. Show me something, and we will hmm. be able to find the causes and conditions that led up to that event. Do you are you that kind of like? Um I always just think of it like uh, uh, like a billiards sort of theory of the universe, like the Big Bang happened and then physics just kind of like in all of its infinite, the dark matter physics that we can't understand yet, well, that if you had a good enough computer, it would be the same reality again? I don't know. I mean, I 
I don't understand physics, so. All right, that's that's more of a philosophical but, question, well, I suppose. Well, but like, do you know what I mean? I, like that empiricist thing. Like you just said, there's nothing, there's no circumstance you can find that doesn't that isn't preceded by causes and conditions. I do believe that, but I also think that that doesn't diminish the mystery and complexity of the mm-hmm. universe. I think it adds to the mystery and complexity yes. of the universe. I don't assume that just because there are causing conditions, we have the cognitive and sensory machinery to observe them. We may not. We may never be able to observe. P.S. This is my argument for astrology. Yeah, well, that's very LA. It's uh, very LA. I'm like, hey, hey, motherfucker, the the moon can make the tide happen, okay? So how do you know that cosmic yeah, bodies up there, right. micro gravities aren't pulling on your DNA when your eggs are getting formed, <laughs> and they decide who you are? Well, it's possible, but then since the magnetic force of all the MRI machines and hospitals around that's us right. is probably that too, stronger. That too, that too, that too, that too. Yeah. That's but, really uh, funny. No, but I do think, um, I will say as a side note, I do make that stupid argument just to be an asshole sometimes, but I also think, to me, astrology functions just as like almost like Jungian like they're all just archetypes well, and it just makes you reflect is look, like is this thing in your life or not you know what I mean I, I mean I love storytelling it's like the oldest human yes. form of entertainment and there are a lot of ways to understand truth other than the kind of scientific method way and I'm, yeah. and I love having those conversations and telling stories you know I think that's a yes. fascinating way I mean, to I obliquely think, get at truth my only problem yeah. is like when someone tries to convince me of truth let me know on what grounds we're talking truth if you're talking right. scientific truth then we need to conform to the scientific method as we yes. understand it if you're talking about philosophical emotional truth and fuck yeah all kinds of other truth. avenues are open to us yeah. you know and i feel like that distinction doesn't get made a lot that is so fucking I, th- this um uh i don't know i feel like this this should be taught to us when we're in kindergarten is how like validation can work and dude, validation you know? is such a critical skill i like anytime i work with anyone no matter what their problem is if yeah. they have any interpersonal problems and who doesn't always teach the validation skill i mean there are many levels of validation you know right to to borrow the dbt um kind of framework but the kind of the most crucial one is just learning how to non-judgmentally observe what someone's saying don't get defensive Mm -hmm. about it or even if you do don't speak defensively figure out why it makes sense that the person is having that point of view and just try to let them know that you understand that. Yeah. And then even if you disagree about the fact claims that's behind that, you can talk about that. But first, it's going to make you much more effective having that conversation. Yeah. If you just say, hey, look, I understand why you say that and feel that way. It makes sense. I don't agree necessarily, but it, it totally makes sense to me. It's valid to me why you have that yeah. perspective. Well, I also feel like, especially in a, a politically, this time in our country, and I think, again, we're not learning um, oh, yeah. human uh, you know, interaction is completely complex and you know an organic way um that the increasing polarization between like on the political spectrum but more like just the cultural spectrum this sort of like weird blanket term identity politics that gets thrown around a lot which like the i think the definition of is like very elusive a little bit but that like um if we were a if we knew how valid works like that idea of validity and validation i don't know i think you'd have a lot less like of like fake woke people who are just learning Dude. the language but don't actually care about you know making the world better or yes. um and and all these things you know all and grievances cuz there's i there's like this idea of like a grieve, grievance as like a point of view i think uh exists on both sides of the political spectrum in well, in like the aggrieved like alt right white guys it's t- the same as like you know 
Yeah, except without a without a historical valid, context. Legit reason, yeah. of course. I no, don't mean but, to like say not. No, no, but, I know you. But I, I think I that the emotional did, yeah. space that comes from prevents us from having any progress well, forward. And look, it's real. I know people find it very distasteful to try to understand why points of view that they strongly disagree with make sense, and I. I get that. I get that too, but I also have a strong feeling that like I I saw this dumb quote. I I thought it was I mean it's cute whatever. That like um uh <laughs> I was like my alarms went off and I haven't processed all of it yet, but like the Gracie University guys, you know, yeah, yeah. they put a little thing up of like a women's self-defense thing yeah, yeah, and yeah. their their thing was like I I'm trained not because it's my responsibility because it's my reality. Mm. And I'm like, okay, that's all right, fine. Yeah. I'm not going to get into it. There's yeah, like yeah, a lot yeah. to unpack there, but fine. Right. But like um but that for me, I identifying and understanding, empathizing even, and truly comprehending the points of view that you don't agree with, I do believe, like, you can say, like, uh, men are canceled and toxic masculinity and white men, whatever, as long as you want, and I kind of agree, as a white straight man, I get it, sure. but also they will kill a lot of people. You know what I mean? Well, like if we don't figure out how to like, here's the bottom line to me. Like, again, I'm, I am an empiricist and the bottom so line, funny that I sound so close to imperialist every time you say it. Oh and God. I'm like, yeah, I'm no, not no, that. Very, very different. Very that. different. <laughs> yeah. But I think but, your oligarch comment, uh, you know, sort yeah. of gives you up on that one. You're, I mean, you're, you're all right. Real talk, dude. But the other piece is like the kind of core value for me in terms of like practice and, and dialogue is effectiveness. Got it. No one ever changed anyone's mind by yelling at them about how much of an idiot they were. <laughs> right. And and very few people change their minds about well, deeply actually, well I mean, about sorry. deeply held beliefs by seeing facts that disconfirm them. That's not how most people mm. change their mind. Even, you know, mm. scientists mm-hmm. have a very hard time changing their like yeah. It's still noteworthy totally. when someone builds and defends a theory their whole career and then someone shows that it's wrong and they say, Oh, I was wrong. Yes. You know, that's still even in science, it's that's a very rare. noteworthy thing. Yeah. People change their mind because they feel validated, understood, and connected emotionally, hmm. and you give them a safe avenue to integrate new information. That's how people change their mind. Is that also how would is that correlative yes. at all to like how you change your mind about your trauma? It's it's how you change your experiences around it, it, it? it's how you i wouldn't necessarily change your mind about trauma it's how you um change your relationship to those memories you change your relationships those memories and the thoughts feelings and behaviors that they um influence mm-hmm. by integrating that information in memory and behavior mm. in different ways in a place where you feel safe that, so yeah yes. that is the case um can you say one more time that, that you had a nice little quote i just want to hear it again like yes. you said it was about validating your emotion or something yeah well the idea is that you can't you can't change your mind about a deeply held um idea or belief without feeling validated and safe to do that and that about requi- where you're already at yeah that that the person you're with hmm is emotionally connected to you, validates and understands your perspective and and your experience of reality. Yeah. That then opens... And then it's like okay to then do Then you can new. integrate new information. Then you can practice <sighs> new behaviors. But without that, without that validation and sense of safety and emotional connection, it's just very unlikely. There are alternative pathways. We just don't really know about them because those aren't people coming to treatment, the ones who fucking figured it out for themselves. We don't right. hear about that. 
Um, that's so true. That's interesting because that's well, like, here's yeah. the other piece, man. You ready for this? Mm. I think these numbers are probably low, but the highest estimates we have for uh, PTSD among returning veterans of the most recent conflicts in mm-hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan, OEF, OIF, is like 35%. That's that's the highest hmm. estimate. Now, let's say it's higher and it's 50%, which I think is probably high. That means half of people. And this means this means that uh, is they qualifies would, for PTSD that their they function screen, in work or love is like well, not. That, that is they not, would screen positive on a psychometric scale. Got it. Um now, I think 50% is way high, okay? I think it's probably closer to 30%. That, that's what the consensus one seems in three to be. People, it could though. be lower if one in, studies one show One in three low. people is like a yeah. lot. But even if half don't, that means fucking half of people exposed to getting their forward operating base mortared yeah. every night don't develop PTSD. What the fuck is going uh, on with those people? Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, we have some guesses. You know, I think it's probably... Hmm. Very robust emotion regulation skills, probably some like neurocognitive processes. Is it possible though that like, like the thing we're talking about, like the Wall Street guy doing coke or whatever, that like there's just an acceptance of what's functional and normal and fine. That's like kind of fucked up. Undoubtedly that captures part of those people, the walking wounded type type of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, another thing I, I was thinking about was like, can you have PTSD from committing terrible acts? Um, Yes. And terrible. I don't mean to sound it so like morally, but like, yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, like on that yes. on killing book we talked about, like yes. that it's the most anathema thing you can do is to harm, is to take someone's life. Yes. As a, you know. What we see, at least in like, again, this is when I'm talking about the research literature, um, this is, you know, statistics is the art of generalizing. So there sure. are going to be individuals who are like, that's not my experience or that of people I know, and you're totally right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in general, what we know from the statistical research is that killing an enemy in combat does not often result in PTSD. Hmm. That's what you're trained to do. No, it can. I'm not saying it can't. It's just that yeah. if you were to look at the combat experiences, like we can look at them on a scale and see the ones that are most predictive of PTSD symptomology, oh, yeah. it's getting in firefights, seeing civilians killed killing civilians and seeing your friends killed and injured oh that's now being in the firefights entails being shot at so that's fucking scary yeah but i mean now just to be clear also i am a civilian so i've not had any of these experiences personally yeah you're speaking from the yeah academia right but um is that has that been true historically like i mean that on killing book suggests that they'd say like 90 they said that they felt like there's something like 98 percent of people who kills someone have this like reaction that is you have to deal with somehow well so here's the other piece is that if you have those all those ptsd symptoms and within two weeks of your adverse experience and then they go away that's not ptsd that's normal got it. it it's only if they persist for longer than two weeks that we would give you something called an adjustment disorder, mm-hmm. um, potentially, or, um, oh, fuck, I'm blanking on the term, but it, there's, there's a, it's not an adjustment disorder. There's, um, there's basically like it's PTSD that hasn't gone on for a month. Yeah. And, and that's like kind of lower in severity. Got it. So this is all to say that it's normal to feel those symptoms for about two weeks. Yeah. But then for most people, they resolve. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so if you get but in the, a but terrible these, car the, accident, the civilian stuff is like, I just think that's really profound because I, I kind of relates to the thing we were talking about before we started recording about like fight sports and like not feeling like I'll feel fucking awful if I see a video of somebody getting like, um, 
you know, like knockout game or something like that. Someone not paying attention oh, and getting horrible. cold cocked. Yeah. But I don't feel anything about seeing two guys like bleeding and smashing each other with elbows because, like you said, yeah, the difference Tony, between Tony Ferguson, uh, Dustin Poirier yes, fight. Yes, dude. Like the difference between NASCAR and. Oh, no, that wasn't. Who was that? It was not Dustin Poirier. It was. Um, I don't fuck, know. But it was an amazing Re- fight. Yeah. But like what you were saying that it's the difference between NASCAR and. Um, and speeding on and the freeway. Speeding on the freeway, yeah. which those videos make me so uncomfortable. Consent and training. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that like a combatant is like you both have agreed and you know which is like obviously imperialism and all the oligarch stuff and like people don't ask you to come to their country and invade it and shit but that there is some level of they're a combatant i'm a combatant we're trying to kill each other versus like something in us that's like that's so fucking i don't know did you see the movie um uh sicario the, the first, the one first one, yeah, because yeah. I'm sure we both have similar feelings. I really love the first one. <laughs> I haven't seen the second one. The second but... one's fucking hilarious. It's um, it's just war porn. It's like somebody yeah, who saw. Right. The, it's like the people who made the first one and thought it was just an action movie about seeing operators be like whatever, right. and uh, <laughs> right. and they just were like, let's just do that, right. and like none like of the commentary directed by Dan Bilzerian it's, or something. Yeah, it's hilarious. But like the um. I mean, it's a rip roaring fun time, but I, like, I mean, you, I will you know, watch it yeah, for if you sure. Want, if you're into that, just sort of like, yeah, actiony war porn. But yeah. the first one, I think, is like a really brilliant movie and has something to say. And one of the things that I think is like really interesting about it is this idea that there's um, that like war is almost something you opt into nowadays, and that like there's these DEA guys or the Delta guys, but they're operating like domestically and over the border and like and like there's this scene that's really great in the first movie where they're like in the long line of people to cross the border in Tijuana and yes. driving through and this firefight happens between like these gun drug guys it's a crazy scene it's a crazy scene and in that scene I feel like that scene's so good just like the first scene when they're driving through suburbia and then there's this house full of like bodies yes. that it's like most of us are just living this normal life and if you want to play the war game you can just drop in and go through those agencies and do that thing and then war will be in your life but the surreality of like people in their cars right there who are just having a normal life do you know what i mean totally i mean the only yes i totally agree i think the one caveat i have is that um we know that uh like the combat arms specialties are uh are, I mean, even though the military is a very diverse institution, the combat arms specialties typically do draw from younger people who are uh, ethnic minority, ethnic and racial minorities from hmm. um, low income backgrounds. So, you know, why do you think that is? Um, well, I think one, the military can be a very good option. Yep. Uh, career option. Yep, I mean, I you can get an real. education, you can get, develop a career speciality. And if you're in like a small town and maybe you, I don't know, didn't do well that, that well in school for a variety of reasons, uh, that it can be like a very good avenue to get out. But they mm-hmm. also target that demographic. Yeah. Um, it seems, um, I don't know, I personally think, and I understand why, I get it, because whatever, whatever. But like, I personally think an all-volunteer force is like kind of fucked up for a society. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Like I it do creates know. this like warrior yeah. class that's like... That seems like on a long enough timeline, that's how you get coups. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do think like our military, even though any large human institution is going to be full of problems, we have, I mean, it's extraordinary to me how professional our military is. It's amazing, actually. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of having a military coup in America is even today in our, when a lot of our democratic institutions are under stress, still to me seems crazy. Like I... That's great to hear. It seems... 
I mean, I've heard that from some other people who have Beyond said like the realm of possibility that the me. people that who are really truly at the top who are running like have a true belief in like their functionality as like a well, and I, and I yeah, I do just have to say a protective this institution also, of America. Yes, I, I mean, I do just have to say because because I do work with a lot of veterans, and one of the things I hear often from veterans is. Um, they're frustrated with the picture of veterans that gets painted in the media as yeah. like fucked up dudes with PTSD who right. flip out. And by far, that is not the case. Yeah. Jay by said that. Jay said that. And, uh, who, if we have it, a bunch it, of veterans actually at Villains. Yeah. Who are dope, great guys. And I actually thought that I really appreciated him saying that because the, um, that guy who had shot people in Thousand Oaks had just Was happened. It, well, here's, here's the thing is that. Yes. So, but I just want to say I want to, oh, I want to repeat what Jay said just while we're talking about it. That he was saying that um, in his experience, he actually feels safer and more trustworthy around veterans in general because he finds them to be people who will show up and who truly believe in like serving people and putting themselves yeah. in in uh, in a place to help others. And I think that was really valuable and important to hear. That like I agree. You know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people who know how to be team players and get the job done <laughs> yeah even when it's hard yeah you know yeah um so i think that's you know the vast majority do very well and um those tr skills translate pretty well um however you know this is a it's extremely rare even though shootings are rare even though they're much too common they're still rare mm -hmm. um this kind of lone gunman yeah. thing the problem is that when someone has military training they are vastly more effective at right, carrying those right. out so for example the dallas shooter who was targeting police officers that was one guy and they couldn't they had to send in a remote control bomb they killed they killed that guy with an ied really yeah they killed him with a bomb on a uh uh it's not a flying drone but a fucking robot that wow. they sent in i mean i that, did not know that. that's how they killed that guy they couldn't go get him this other they guy sure didn't publicize that very much because no. i didn't know that and that's a very scary thought of the killer the robot Thing. Uh, that's like yes fuck, the, wow. the other thing is this most recent recent thousand oak shooter this guy i mean he had a 45 only one person who was shot survived that's much right. much lower rate yeah. than other Oof. people so he was he knew what he was doing he first targeted security rolled in smoke grenades and then took up a tactical position and shot the two people who came the first responders who came in. Yeah. That's not some right. incel neck beard in his mom's Did, basement getting have, a gun. They had know? like a, um, wasn't there like a quote unquote good guy with a gun there too who got killed by deputies? No, that was something? a different scenario. It was a black guy, security guard with a gun who was, after subduing the oh, that's right. The, shooter, the, right. he was killed by police. Unbelievable. Yeah, where was the NRA on that one? Anyway, this fucking country. Um, yeah, so, but, but I anyway. I didn't get off topic too much, but. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but the upshot is that um, for... I think we were talking about this for military combat trauma. Mm -hmm. These two kind of gold standard, I guess three, if you count EMDR interventions are just not that effective. So we need much more research. Okay. Um, so this is getting back to the, the quote unquote talk therapy, this colloquialism. That's like, who the fuck knows what that means versus like cog cognitive behavioral therapy would be the stuff that's like, yeah, I mean, there's also evidence-based psychodynamic therapy. I, I would just say, if you're going to go to a therapist, you should ask them, Hey, like what's your, orientation thing, yeah. yeah what do you do what are you trained in you know yeah what's your kind of practice philosophy right and if they're like uh, i'm eclectic you know if if you're yeah. feeling okay and that's okay with you cool but they should be able to articulate some kind of practice philosophy yeah and they should be able to explain to you why what they want to do with you is appropriate for your symptoms yeah i mean that's just you know got it the problem is that there just isn't that much there just isn't that much good stuff for this complex or, or 
combat related trauma like yeah. being exposed to a lot of trauma chronically you, over time and that's the the homeless populations too homeless youth you're saying that's a similar similar yeah i mean they're not they've not been in combat but very often they've had childhood trauma or childhood sexual trauma which is the number one predictor risk or risk factor for ptsd wow um and then they're you know the problem is when you're does it have to do the age the yes. age at which you're exposed to trauma yep. age is a predictor also when it's someone who you love and trust in mm-hmm. the family who's supposed to take care of you like violates those rules and norms and makes it very difficult then to develop trusting relationships which yeah. we know are hugely protective getting back to that work and love and social support idea yeah so um hmm. Yeah, you know, when someone's exposed, just just to take an example, like if you grow up in a really violent, and again, this is not everybody, but if you grow up in a really violent household, you learn kind of apropos of what we were talking about earlier, oh, this is a problem-solving strategy. Right. And you also become desensitized to... Oh, this is that was before we were recording, I think, right? Yeah. I'll just yeah. repeat that. I think that there is... Uh, I What I said to Nick was that it, it occurred to me when I was younger that like the, the real bad i mean it's bad just to hit somebody it's bad to hurt somebody but also when you hit a kid you teach them that that's an acceptable part of a social lexicon for solving problems or dealing with their feelings in the future and that kind of gets passed forward in my estimation of things now you know not always like i mean my dad and all his siblings got hit by their father and my i never ever saw my dad raise his voice more than like this to me you know what i mean so it just depends, but um, I think that is that is true. That's uh, maybe a really cool takeaway to reiterate. Not not like because as we focus on this stuff and as this podcast always focuses on on what's making us fucked up or whatever. But like um, that, even that idea that combat veterans that like fifty percent of them kind of like probably more do well, do well, probably yeah. more, pr- probably as high as seventy. You were saying like 30, 30, 35 is the standard. Yeah, I mean the other thing is like these numbers are uh, from people who are. Um, getting treated at the VA and by the way, there are 22 million military veterans. Yeah. That's, that's a, a lot of people. Lot. Well, what's what, what's active at any given moment, like three oh, million or something, uh, two, two and a half million. I think it's like a million oh, that's active it? duty, but then a bunch in reserve, reserve. and yeah. national guard components. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. So, so, but that, but that, that, that is sort of a hopeful metric. I think for everybody to be like, like your dad and probably a lot of our parents that like, just didn't like that thing and we're like i don't think that's the right thing to do i'm not going to do that people are resilient the problem oh this is the trauma the problem though is that when you that happens from a young age not only do you have that trauma experience but you're also at higher risk for experiencing subsequent trauma because like for me where i didn't grow up in a violent household at all yeah if i see two people like if i'm at like a party or and and Mm -hmm. shit starts to feel weird and like there's aggression and i'm seeing people start to Mm -hmm. be aggressive i'm like oh shit this is bad news i'm out of here but if you grew up like that you're like fucking normal that's that's fucking interesting because i I think about that a lot about like that there seems to be there does seem to be some subconscious almost psychic thing where like victims and victimizers find each other yeah you know in in even just relationship dynamics codependency and stuff like that yeah right and so um, is that because of a like uh like you were saying like a modeling that's what you were comfortable with while you were forming and so you repeat it i don't even think it's a cognitive it's not like you make that decision it's just like you you don't recognize those fear and danger signals because they've been incorporated into your view of what's normal because they literally were yeah. normal for you. Right. So 
Um, so when in, in treating that kind of thing, is it, uh, like you were saying about like validating the experience, creating yes. a safe environment and then saying like, well, now can we say that that wasn't the, normal? The key, rather than saying that it's not normal, I think the key is, and this is why third things are called third wave therapies, like these new iterations of cognitive behavior therapy, like dialectical behavior therapy, ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy is another one. Mm. They are mindfulness-based interventions because mindfulness teaches you to observe your present moment thoughts, experience, mm. uh, emotions, and behavioral urges without judgment, Ooh. with an attitude of acceptance. Not that you like it or you approve of it, just yeah. that you accept that it's your reality. You know what, that's, well, and let me just say, yeah, so, please. so the learning to observe and describe and accept the reality of your experience helps you to retool your brain to recognize those danger signals. Because now you're noticing, oh, what's happening in my body? Oh, okay, like my heart rate's going up a little bit. Mm. Palms are starting to sweat. Okay, what urges am I having? What emotions am I noticing? That's so funny because... That my... helps you reintegrate that information. Yeah. But without mindfulness, it's very difficult to do that. So, No, I was just... My therapist uh, gave me two thoughts. One, um, I think Erin Robinson, she's a... I used to work with her as a, a host at this place, Clever, and she was on this podcast a while ago. And I had a really interesting discussion with her where she um, hasn't really had therapy or anything like that, but she's... Christian and she has like a relationship with Christianity mm -hmm. and her God that means a lot to her yeah. and uh, but that she the way she was describing she was describing mindfulness practices where like she's in a moment where she wants to say fucked up shit and whatever and that she just checks in with God and she's like and I know that God wants me to be so I kind of like and I was like that's so interesting to feel like you you arrived at the same kind of thing by creating a metric of you know a sp I mean in 12 step they say your higher power it doesn't have to mean God it can mean whatever you think it is mm -hmm. Uh, and then I also it was making me think about when I was in therapy one of the mo one of a, a profound moment for me early on in it was her asking me how I was feeling like how you doing the casual like like uh, how or how you feeling I think how you feeling was that and just having a moment of being like I'm like numb like I couldn't even feel my body yes. in a weird way and that when and that she started this mindfulness thing of like. I still do it sometimes where like when I ask that question, we're like, I feel the weight of gravity and pushing my butt into the chair and like, exactly. and just what, you know, and started starting with the five senses because that data, that sense data is always available, even mm -hmm. if you don't know what the fuck you're feeling. And that's very often the case for mm. people with traumatic experiences that they don't know what they're feeling. Is that, is there anything connection with that you think in like different compulsions that you use to deal like the first one that popped in my mind was like eating, like emotionally, like eating or Dude, doing drugs that you like, you hijack your, you one, know, five senses. 1000%. Yeah. Um, because your sense data is your tether to the present moment. Like is it, is there any kind of like, are you, are you doing it to like avoid feeling the thing that is you're really feeling? Uh, well, I think very often, I mean like what, remember one of those symptom criteria for PTSD is avoidance, you know, behavioral and cognitive yeah. avoidance. So I, mean, I think, show me someone who has a substance abuse problem and I'll show you someone who has anxiety or depression. I mean, it's almost right. never the case that people are doing that because they feel awesome. <sighs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. One of my dearest and oldest friends is in, uh, he's nine months sober right now. Um, and I'm so inspired by his example because he has really done the hard work of confronting the underlying mental health problems yeah. that, um, were provoking his use mm. and that shit is fucking, I mean, it, hard. it's hard. Like he's gone deep, you mm -hmm. know, and just exposed all these things that were so shameful and hard to talk about mm. and it takes an enormous amount of courage. That's that. And that is exposure. That is a level of exposure. You're forcing yourself 
if you want to use like a more martial term or allowing yourself, if you want to use a softer one, to really experience difficult and unpleasant emotions. And what happens when you do that, if you have tools, if you have mm. coping, if you have no tools, I don't think you should do that. You should first learn some tools. Oh, so that's you, interesting. Yeah, it's it's contraindicated to take someone who's, for example, in DBT, suicidal and self-harming and suddenly... And DBT is, again, is dialectical di- behavioral therapy. Yeah, p- people who have who are not coping well with their trauma experiences and maybe they're coping with like substance abuse, self-harm behavior. And suddenly you do mindfulness with them or ask them to recount their trauma to you. That's contraindicated because they don't have the skills to manage those emotions yet. First, you have to learn how to self-regulate probably Mm. with like some somatic or like breath oriented physiological Mm. relaxation exercises. So you realize, okay, I, I can, can get back to baseline after thinking about this tough stuff. And then you have, as you're saying, like some tools in your toolkit to allow you to venture into more dangerous territory. So when you're treating somebody who's experiencing, you know, traumatic uh, stress or I don't know, I guess any kind of, I, I would assume like adverse mental conditions in general, like you start there, you start with like, how can we manage the symptom that you're experiencing, offer you tools and I, then move yes, to I would always unpacking. start with mindfulness and physiological relaxation skills training. I've, uh, I'll personally say that like, almost always. I, I think about, uh, I just say living in inquiry and I try to like maintain that as opposed to like judgment, like going like, this is, this is like kind of staying like open to like what I'm experiencing. What yes. is that? Why is that? What is that feeling? You know? Yes. And, but that's the critical piece of mindfulness too. There's also some emerging research literature to show that people with very developed mindfulness practices have had some really uh, negative consequences where they feel depersonalized, increased yeah. anxiety. So I think that's interesting. So it's, you know, I, I mean, see that. Yeah. That's emerging research. It's still very new. It's not as good yet because it's new dialectical thing again, too. Just everything's Yeah. Gonna, right. I mean, I have this joke that like any fucking conversation you're in, if you're not paying attention, you can just cut it and go, well, it's all about that balance. It's all <laughs> yeah, about finding I mean, that balance. Pretty much. It'll man. always work. Yeah, pretty much. But so I think for most people, mindfulness is very safe. You know, you just don't want to go to extremes, but it's important to learn this from someone who has a practice. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you can do it on your own. Like you yeah. can, there's, there's lots of available tools um, on your own. I think it's, probably one of the very safest things you can do on your own it's unlikely that you yeah that's our thing like learning to like you can even watch youtube video and learn how to do some breathing stuff yeah or like, yeah and uh, that's totally so, yeah like progressive muscle relaxation deep breathing all this stuff is super safe the critical piece with like a mindfulness practice is just the non-judgment component if you are observing your thoughts urges and mm. emotions and judging them then you're teaching yourself how to ruminate which is not good Oh. So the non-judgment component is extremely important. It's it's an acceptance and validation of the reality of the moment, not a approval or disapproval. So if it's, for example, like let's say you experience something mm. shitty like jealousy, right? Like, you know, someone you still care about your ex, you see them out with someone you feel jealous. Well, it doesn't mean that you like feeling that or you approve of it or you think you should feel it. It just means that that's the experience you're having right now. And then you can kind of dictate your response to not dictate your response but like make choices about how you yeah, respond then you can access your other tools to decide how you want to respond to that but without the non-judgmental observation and acceptance of that reality mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be able to effectively deal with it oh i yeah. shouldn't feel that i'm not feeling it i don't want to feel it i feel like you're much more likely to behave under its influence than yeah. too yes i would agree like let it take make choices for you can i yeah let's take a little pause right. yeah of course thanks 
All right, we're recording again. We took a little pee and water break. Yeah. This one's going a little long. Well, it's hard to say that. In my early days of this podcast, there's plenty of like two and a half and three hour episodes and stuff like that. And I've been trying to like lock it down at more more like hour and a half, you know, you know, be sort of like right. respect that humans have limitations or whatever. Right. right. Um, where do we leave off? Where do we... Um, Man, I think where should we pick up? I was like, I could go into my like six quick cues with you, which I think I'll do with you anyway, even sure. though, but, um, yeah, wherever you want, but I still think this is, I, I don't know. Um, did we, we talked about define, Oh, this is a quite, this is what I want to bring up. Okay. So we've talked a lot about, you've worked obviously with people who have been exposed to what by any accounts we'd qualify as like extreme versions of what would adverse conditions, trauma, adverse conditions. Yes. I, um, I'm curious about like. Part of this is from my own experience and part of this is just I think people like listening and the validation of in that idea that like reality is subjective that like even Mm -hmm. as an empiricist that like mindfulness I think uh, and those kind of like inquisitive personally inquisitive processes are like it doesn't like if I'm like I'll just say okay therapy this is the thing I had a moment in therapy uh, at one of my first therapists who I don't think it was a very good therapy situation for me overall just because of how I would, you know, I think you, it's hard, especially as a young person or as a smart person or whatever to like, not feel like you're outsmarting them or like not really mm-hmm. committing to the process, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I do remember one day coming in really frustrated and being like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. This. I don't have any real problems. I don't have any real problems. And, and she's like, what do you mean? I was like, I just can recognize that I, I'm like a privileged person. I'm healthy. I'm smart. I'm just whatever. And I'm just can't fucking activate in my life. And it's, it's just some days it's, it's most days it's very hard just to breathe, but I don't have any like real problems. And then I think I ended on, yeah, some days it's just hard to breathe. And there's like this little pause. And then she was like, that's a real problem. And I just like cried, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. So yeah. my question which is, is... valid. Which is... I mean, she validated you. Yes. And that's, I think, what that's I... That's a high level of validation. ...want to get at is like, personally, I I use the word trauma a lot. I, I, I describe... I think um, relatively recent, I would say in the last like five years of my life, four years of my life, truly starting to think about these things and process how they've affected me or whatever, that I, I just call my traumas and they kind of become abstract because I don't, I don't think I have, I definitely don't have like a specific, like an attack or a thing or like, sure. there was no like physical violence in my home, um, but there was like, a general long-term, uh, I think part of it was like parenting my parents and parenting my siblings early, mm-hmm. uh, incredible instability. My dad had, um, drug addiction and uh, mental breakdown and got like to the point that he got disbarred and like life was really weird during the divorce of my parents. Did that happen like in front of you? Uh, yeah, nine to like 15, 14, those kind of things. Yeah. And, um, and just like weird. Yeah. Some of it was like, definitely in retrospect, you're like, there were moments of, I, well, I guess this is my question. I not again nothing that like like victim. You know what I mean? Like that I would put in the same category of like what people have experienced in war or homeless situations. Um, let me. I'll just try to wrap it up, and then I'll let you. I would love to hear your response. My question is for me and for other people out there. Maybe for me, trauma has become almost abstract, and that I can I connect it sometimes to just like toxic shame, like something I feel mm-hmm. born with or mm-hmm. something, some mm-hmm. sense of just like I'm a bad thing in the universe, and that there is uh, and those feelings. Which again, I got diagnosed with depression, you know, so maybe that's just mm-hmm. a, a chemical thing. Who knows? But that there is um, something that feels almost abstract that uh, I think, like you said, that thing that witnessing a terrorist event or doesn't count. But like, well, I think a lot I'm of people s- seeing one on TV doesn't count. 
Okay, but, but but to me, so in the same thing though, for me is like, in what the about DSM. what about this weird like? I don't know how to turn this into a cogent question. I know I keep thinking I'm going to wrap it up in the next few words. But my idea of just like validating and like what is real that I know there's some big pain and sorry, (laughs) some big pain and some big anger that I don't really know why. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I think I'm with you. Let me see if I am responding. Well, and and I, and I don't mean, this isn't a therapy session for me. I'm not going to be that uncomfortable for people or for you or whatever, but I think a lot of people have this thing and Uh, I can't say this is why. Yes. Yes. So let me see if I, I think I understand what you're, so it's, let me kind of um, reflect back and see if I'm getting it. So what it sounds like to me, and I think this, you're right. This is a sentiment shared by I think many people is like, fuck, I have some, like, there's some things that really cause me a lot of pain and problems Mm -hmm. and that are super difficult for me to deal with. But I can't say, oh, it's because I was raped or it's because I was mugged or it was because I was in combat. Right. But nevertheless, there are these fucking things that I'm having trouble dealing with. And And I think even, even like that, I guess I'd almost describe them as like environmental and um, chronic. Like it was like a time of life that was this way, which I do also think in our current day and age, a lot of people are having, whether it's like, I was just saying the other day to somebody, I was like, I was feeling, I was like, I don't know, maybe it's just because I went to the Twitter Explore page and it was like about this like woman who, a trans woman who died in ICE, you know, custody and who was, because she had complications from AIDS because she was like, trying to leave the place that she got raped by gang members, you know, and like, and global warming that nobody gives a fuck about or Trump. And you're like, how, you know, this impending doom feeling that I'm like, what do you do for that? For like everybody. (laughs) So, yeah. And this, yeah. And so I think, um, this kind of gets to the heart of why it's so difficult to talk about and to understand trauma related trauma-related mental and behavioral health symptoms and problems. Mm. And I almost think that like to me in my own mind and when I'm working with people, I think like specificity and precision is really important because otherwise we debate the utility of very vague terms. So if someone like what, when I talk to someone, I'm almost not interested in whether their experience meets DSM criteria of mm-hmm. trauma. I'm interested in like what's going on and what have your experiences been like? And can you take me through, like, what do you think about what, what comes into your mind when these problems come up? What enters your mind? What do you connect it back to? What are the processes and skills you're using to understand and manage those things? That to me is much more important and interesting than like, okay, well, does your particular experience meet this DSM criteria for like that? I don't care about that. You know what I mean? I don't find it interesting really. The only reason it's important is because it can help like point to which treatments are most effective. But as we've said, um, depending on who you are, these treatments may not be that effective. Yeah. So I think it's much more important to go. You said something before we even started, actually, I think it was interesting and that's a good place to insert it about the oh, placebo yeah. effect being the most reliable effective medicine, effective yeah. medicine <laughs> that like 50% of the time you can count on placebo effect. Well, because placebo is not something made up. It's an actual endorphin response in the brain. Like when people, there's hmm. a study, um, examining placebo effect as, a uh, uh, painkiller for dental surgery. Okay. And Holy people who, shit. yeah. And people who used 
were in the placebo group, not everyone is as good at using the placebo right. effect. That's a contorted way of saying it, but not everyone enjoys the same effect, yeah. placebo effect. But of the people who did enjoy the effect, there was a measurable increase in endorphin release in the yeah. brain. So it's not some fake thing that's happening. I mean, that's just the craziest study to imagine. Like Dude. for dental pain. Yeah, try getting that through your institutional <laughs> review board. <laughs> but it worked. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But so, so treatment that says this idea that yeah, so whatever you're think like we don't even know it, it, like you said specificity of what the uh, instance was can help in terms of finding the appropriate treatment. But even then, like not every treatment works for every person. Right. Well, and so let me make another. You know, so I think it's very what you certainly don't want is to have clinicians or other people in your life invalidating your personal experience of pain because they mm-hmm. don't think it meets the standard of severity that in their minds is required. Yeah. I mean, that is, if you are talking to someone like that about your, your experiences, you should probably not talk to them about it because they're not someone who's going to be able to validate you in an appropriate way. Remember we talked about a sense of emotional safety, mm-hmm. not physical, I mean, physical safety, of course, but being able to yeah. feel emotionally safe and validated is like a prerequisite for changing growth. So I feel like I've seen, I feel like that's like one of those things that like, I mean, again, I don't have kids, but like that thing that makes your heart drop if you see a kid in public who's like, oh. just like, just in a big, you know, like, ah, and the parents are just like, shut up, does something where you're just like, that kid's going to take that the rest of his life. The well, sadness of seeing. Yes. So, here, but here's the other piece then is that validation and acceptance are um, necessary, but not sufficient criteria for recovery. Mm hmm. So sometimes, you know, that's really important. I feel like you could repeat that a million times. Validation and acceptance are not criteria. Are, are necessary, are but necessary. not sufficient criteria. Ugh, yeah, necessary, but not sufficient criteria. Which is why like very... I think a lot of people stop there. They do. And, and so the analogy that's an imperfect analogy that I like to use is like, okay, imagine there's a pothole outside your house and every time you fucking leave, you run over that pothole and blow a tire. Well, it's awesome when you finally figure out, oh my God, I'm blowing a tire every day because I keep running over this pothole. Yeah. Yes, that's hmm. excellent. Now you know that, but you have to fill the pothole. Otherwise yeah. you're going to keep hitting it. So, well, I think that's hard for people to comprehend, uh, even who believe in it. I believe, you know, because, because the science of the mind is so dialectic that it's like it's yeah. not the same thing as a pothole. We're gonna solve this pot like the pothole. I'll solve it by like putting concrete there or driving around it or whatever. But it's like hard to differentiate what you're doing um, as separate from acknowledging and processing and witnessing. Yes, and then whatever the other thing is to actually do. Well, dude, deal with he- it. here's another assumption that I steal from DBT that I think is very helpful. And then this assumption is like your problems are real. And it's very likely that you did not cause all of them. And that's like that thing you said, like, do you think that's related to like reality has precedence yeah, and, yeah. you know. But, but here's the other part of that. It's very likely. So, again, that the first part is your problems are real and it's very likely that you didn't cause all of them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's also very likely that you are going to be the have to one be the one to fix them. Yes, which I feel like relates to that larger thing we were talking about about getting in the mindset of people you disagree with, even like from a yes. political sensibility. Yes, like, exactly. yeah, you know, I, that's how I think that a lot. Like, yeah, you don't fucking deserve to have to explain this thing to some idiot. You don't have, you don't no, deserve to have right. to like put on you to be patient with things right. or to be constantly having to fight to have your experiences validated. That it sucks to have to do that. It feels mm-hmm. awful. 
Yeah. But I think the other flip side of that, especially with personal issues, is that it does it is empowering to know like it's validating to know that it's real. It's like a weird kind of validating and forgiving and like acceptancy kind of vibes to me to go like and you didn't cause them it's not your fault and then also to know that like and while it is unpleasant that you are going to be the only one who like you will be if you want it fixed that you have to do it the work yeah, and, to do and it you can get help i think yeah. but but you're gonna have to drive that pr- the lion's share of the work will belong to you but it is fucking lovely to know that you can and that's why the tools are so important so i think as you said like a mm-hmm. lot of people get stuck on that first part which is like wanting to be validated, wanting to be understood, or just doing that work themselves, like understanding and validating their own experiences, regardless of whether they rise to the DSM criteria of trauma or not. And I again, I just want to reiterate, if something is causing you problems, that's real. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't need, you don't need to have been in combat to have problems and you shouldn't minimize your problems because they're not as extreme as someone yeah. else's well minimize what how is it going to help you fix them anyway exactly again coming back to my kind of like guiding principle of effectiveness you know like that is not going to be effective in helping you to live a happy life i think uh to myself sometimes i think about like i do think this is part of why i think physical culture is can be so helpful like strength training for me um is something i think that's or athletics in general but like i'll just use strength training because it's simple um, knowing I will never squat a thousand pounds, that's not my <laughs> physiology, yeah. doesn't mean that if I can't squat a thousand pounds, I can't get stronger. Of course. Do you know what I'm saying? Totally. So like that somebody, like some, to somebody might have horrible big traumas and they walk through it fine and deal with it their own way and they're okay. And I think it's all right to say like just the way somebody who can squat a thousand pounds will be able to carry a fuck ton of weight and be okay. And you won't like, you know what I mean? That it's not a moral problem. It's not a moral failing of like your emotional lack of worth or quality. It's just that like our organisms are all built differently. And and that's why I think if you part of this is especially in treatment, reorienting your um, kind of values away from good or bad and should and shouldn't to effectiveness. Oh, that's because, good. That's because really good. Who cares if you should feel the way you do after this experience? You do feel it, mm-hmm. which is why the mindfulness component is so important. Non-judgmental acceptance of this is my experience. Fighting the reality of that experience and undermining yourself and devaluing yourself for failing some imaginary moral standard how does that help you effectively cope with the problem? No one has ever shamed themselves out of feeling depressed or traumatized. No one has ever done that. And if you could do that, then I would be the first in line to shame you. Yeah, I'm going to keep fucking trying, I guess. Uh, Cause it seems like, I think I'll get it one of these days. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's so funny though. That's really good, dude. And like, so often I will say that to people because like my kind of, everybody out there, please continue trying and let me know when it succeeds for you. just continue yeah. shaming. And That's you can, you so can write funny. that book, shame yourself out of depression. But <laughs> I think look, I did. I think the Catholics wrote one or two of those. Probably. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that's a real institution we should try to emulate, right? Yeah, Jesus absolutely. Christ. Don't get me started, but no but, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> I think Jesus Christ would have issues with it. Actually, I think he'd be I'm pretty certain. fucking annoyed. I saw, I saw some something recently, and it's some corny shit. But I, I don't know. I've, I've um, kind of the way we're talking about narratives are powerful. I just think raised in a culture that's and uh, a lot of the dominant like civilizations of the world are like based around Abrahamic faiths, whether they're uh, Judaism, um, uh, you know, uh, Islam or, mm-hmm. or Christianity. Yep. But that like. Um, it does dictate a lot of things, but there was something that said something about like that when they, when Jesus like 
saw his fate uh that there's an, this other interpretation of like he he didn't weep because he knew he was going to be crucified he wept because of all of the billions and millions of people that would be murdered and raped and oppressed yeah. in his name for the rest of time and i think that's a really beautiful thing to think about yeah. that like that there yeah. is a there's a there's a figure of this idea of the of the christ consciousness that's been hijacked by like horrible basically terrorist organizations the catholic church is a terrorist organization well, it's a fucking pedophile cult right now yeah but, right yeah. and i mean like back to the crusades i mean they're just like they've done horrible things even if the pope now seems like i don't know maybe he's a nice guy who knows but my point is they've done a lot of good things too i i don't want to like disquant account like well I, in my experience like uh i'm totally getting off on a tangent about religion community uh Religious organizations can do wonderful things. Yeah, it can be really protective. It's just anytime you have an institution that is made up of human beings that thinks they have a monopoly on truth, I think you're going to have a problem. Yeah, I think there's something nice personally, and everybody can have their own thing, but I do love the idea of divinity. I think it's something that we share, that we have inside of us, something, um, I, that's just the word I like to use, like something holy, something like magical, that's something's like pure and precious and centered in love oh, that dude. we can nurture you know i was a religion major undergrad so oh wow yeah Yeah, dude we could do this all fucking day that's really funny yeah i don't know i think that 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 can be i don't know because i believe i believe in that in a in a i believe in that in the most secular way you could believe in it totally do you know what i mean yes i i 100 do know what you mean like what is dark matter (laughs) yeah like because i think again it connects to this idea of community storytelling making sense of the unknowable, which is by definition frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, there's like an inherent, uh, I don't know. I, I like, maybe I like to believe, but I don't think I even, it's like the good faith, bad faith, existentialism thing. You, you come yeah. to the conclusion that nothing makes sense and it's all here by accident and there's no way to tell the meaning behind any of it. And does that make you think, so fuck it, I can do whatever I want. There's no rules. Or does that make you think, and that's why it's so beautiful and precious and we need to like be kind to each other and make right. this a good thing. Right. And it's weird to me. I don't know. Sometimes I do sort of believe in like quote unquote good and evil in the sense of like, what is your impulse around that realization? Yeah, those are probably anchor points on the vast spectrum of yeah morality, right? Like, do I you mean, believe inherently that we are we should do our best to be good to each other, or do you believe in uh, create less pain? Well, again, I, I that's why I think this value of effectiveness is so profound and beautiful, even though it sounds almost like mechanical. I, I don't think it is because, yeah, that's like. I think a world like that would be better, right? So right. that seems like the most effective way for people to live in a happy and healthy way together is to try to like be decent to each other. Yeah. Um including themselves. Including themselves, man. Yeah. How can you be how can you validate and be kind to someone? I mean, find someone who's really bad at validating someone else, and I guarantee you they're not doing a very good job of validating their own experience. Hurt people, hurt people. Yeah, exactly. So that's like often the most difficult homework, you know, is like, okay, now you've gotten good at like getting what you want interpersonally because you've learned how to validate people's mm-hmm. experiences and now like try validating your own internal experiences whenever you have that automatic shame thought, automatic like moralizing mm-hmm. thought, should, shouldn't, etc. I'm going to, I think, um, I'm repeated again. I, I'm trying to get it right this time, but that like validation and acceptance aren't enough uh, that like then you have to, 
what to use tools i i guess but just that that the work uh, the demand of the work is on your shoulders that oh no I'm, that's what it was that you didn't create you probably didn't even create the trauma it's not your fault this thing that happened to you but it will be within your uh court to fix it yeah. but also that that means that you can fix it right that's what's kind of the flip side of that that's so wonderful is like yeah if you didn't create your problems that you still have to fix them but you can fix them that's right. what, i mean and i don't want to look and I don't mean fix right to mean like yeah, there's yeah. bad and good and well, again moralizing well, right or, or that it's going to be easy. I mean, if no one wants to be unhappy and if people knew how to be happy, they would fucking do that. You know <sighs> what I mean? So it's so it's it's not enough to just say, oh yeah, like you can fix it, so do it. No, sometimes you need a lot of help. You need sometimes you need an enormous amount of help. Mm. You know. So on that, because that was the thought I had in the back of my head, I want to ask you near the end as we start to like wind this down for, yeah. for today at least. I don't know. This is pretty fun. Yeah. Um, you know, again, a thing in the zeitgeist, and I think I started this podcast a lot because of the sort of like zeitgeist feelings about mental health, which yeah. for me started with um, the idea of it like we've reached a phase where it seems easy for us to um, encourage and accept other people seeking help, but it's still hard to turn that on ourselves and go like maybe <laughs> me, me too. It. Um, but on that same token, I was having a, a, a talk one day um, with a friend around the time Anthony Bourdain died and... Um, and they said something that I thought was really insightful and kind of like I, I'm, I'm keeping it vague about who it was because I think it's um, not like the most correct politically thing to say, maybe, sure. but that there's this thing in our culture of um, this is dovetail. This will dovetail into a more specific question, but I think this is interesting of like somebody kills themselves and it makes everybody sad and suicides in the news and we talk about it and everybody goes like please reach out please ask for help please tell somebody don't suffer alone we're all this thing blah blah and then 95 percent of the rest of the time it's like good vibes only well, and like I, cut yeah. toxic people out of your life people are you caught them out and that kind of thing yes. and if you have that mentality generally um that doesn't feel very easy to say hey i think about killing myself because being alive is really hard yeah can you talk to me about it you know in a culture that's like you know what i'm saying so like these mixed yes, messages about totally. mental health i guess the question i was going to ask and you can respond to that part of it too that nuance thing but is truly what should someone do to get help even me i will say for me sliding scale therapy places really help me but like yeah. it, i have insurance and i was trying to Dude. get psychiatric care and it seemed so oh inexpe easy couldn't find a place it to is. go the places i wanted to go were like we won't fucking uh we'll give you medication but you need to have a diagnosis first we're not gonna diagnose you wait list for months long you yelp them and they're atrocious so if somebody wants help like and i agree with you what you're saying you need experts sometimes to help you with these tools. Don't just talk to somebody and, you know, debrief basically and redo the trauma on your own. Uh, what should someone do to get help? Man, it's a really good question. And I'm going to give a bit of a lengthy answer. But the shorter answer Please. is it is really difficult. Here's what our system is set up to do. It's set up to provide excellent care to people with a ton of money. So when I and it's right. set up to provide in some cases pretty good care to people with no money. So again, my practice experience first was at LA County Department of Mental Health at a directly operated clinic serving a Medi-Cal population. So people who are paying hmm. zero. Yeah. Okay. Now the clinics vary in quality, although I do think DMH by and large is quite good. My clinic, What's DMH? Uh, Department of Mental Health. Okay. LA County Department of Mental Health. Okay. My clinic was 
excellent. I got excellent training. My supervisors were fantastic. We had really good patient outcomes. We were doing good work. Okay. Mm. Um, this is where I got my DBT training. I got my CBT training there. I got my prolonged exposure training there. Mm. They were really an excellent clinic. Um, and then I worked at a private practice in Beverly Hills, um, seeing the other side of the spectrum. People were paying $250 out of pocket. We didn't take any insurance. Okay. Mm. There's not a lot of good stuff in the middle is the problem. Yeah. So if you are working, doing okay, have insurance, it's very, very difficult. P- practitioners don't want to take insurance because it's such a fucking nightmare to mm-hmm. deal with insurance companies. You don't get I know the person I go to now, I don't, I don't, I go like once a month yeah. to check in and they help you, me. You don't get reimbursed forever. Yeah. Uh, they won't reimburse you for things other than specific diagnoses, DSM diagnoses, which again is why it's important to have knowledge of those. Yeah. So if you are, um, well, first of all, if you're suicidal, I do encourage you to call those hotlines. hotlines, If you are really suicidal and you don't think you're going to stay safe, then I I just have to say, I think you should go to the emergency room. You should call 911 and go to an emergency room because um, one way to get connected into a system is if you are in a psych ER, unfortunately. So if if you really feel like you're not going to be able to keep yourself safe tonight, you need to go to the ER or call 911. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But if it's not that level. Yeah. Um, and I know I picked a very extreme example because no, I think just, about it a lot, but yeah, also it's just, just that, incumbent on me that I have to say that. Thank you for um, doing that. Yes, totally. Um, yeah. But the other piece is, man, you know, like if you have a good network, social network, like tap your network and tap your friends. Um, to help you because it's really find someone who is like a really good friend who's willing to spend some hours sitting with you mm-hmm. calling a bunch of places trying to make something work mm-hmm. um, who's willing to call your insurance company with you mm. because it's not easy it's going to be labor dude that's that's real that's good advice too because I've never heard somebody say that and it is true I don't know how long I put off because I'd try the one call and be on hold and you're like I oh, fuck this it's you gonna know? take you hours it's gonna take you more time than it would take you to find a good mechanic okay mm-hmm. um, it's gonna take it's a lot a- more complicated <laughs> than a fucking sob <laughs> you got that right and that's not an easy car <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> That's yeah, so funny. So, that's the first. That's because my family had this sob for years, and we just like fucking. It was the n- most biggest nightmare. That's probably why I thought at first. Really funny. Yeah, I mean, so look, you know, prepare, get a couple of friends, buy them lunch, like, mm. let them know this is going to be a, a day, and it may be a couple days of working the phones, collecting information, um, really advocating for yourself too, using all of your sp- interpersonal and social skills to advocate for yourself. Um, if you are with like an HMO, like Kaiser finding a patient advocate, uh, they have a patient advocate there mm-hmm. in Kaiser. Yeah. Uh, any hospital. I will say will like my, have... my, um, and I got something th- through covered California or something like that. Yep. They do have people like they have nurses on call, which I don't think are the same thing. It's not, but there's like, I don't know. There's there. It, it was, it was very strange. Cause at first my reaction to my, and I have an HMO, uh, you know, kind of a thing. Um, not like the best whatever you know like my primary care physician is like a walk-in clinic you know yeah but um yeah i mean the other piece is like you have to negotiate with your therapist like for a sliding scale like 
you know, therapists are people. We want we're motivated to see people who we like and yeah. who we find interesting. I mean, I I I, I credit uh, some life saving for sure to like the uh, Southern California Counseling Center. I I went to the Maple Center for a bit uh, yep. my first uh, ch- time, yep. and then um, when I later came back. I think I just have sense memories and I'm just an emotional person. Yeah. But like I I yeah, I walked in there and I and I felt like a dog at the vet and I was like Totally, man. Dude, it was scary as fuck. And um Sorry, it just comes no, back. Yeah, I, it, yeah. it was like kind of just beautiful too. It's like inspiring, you know. It was like nice and human like but they were like you seem truly in crisis and they got me in real fast. Yeah. That, I mean, it's great. 25 bucks a session. Yes. You know? Exactly. And I was like I could do that. I could figure that out. Yeah. You know, that's like I was spending way more than that on drinking every night. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Um, anyway. So sorry well, to get I started. No, to, no that, I mean, I'm not really sorry. I feel like you're no, used dude, to it. And yeah, this, this is who is, I am for on, sure. Man. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, no but anyway, so sliding scale, you can negotiate with your own therapist. Yeah. Do, do that. Yeah. You know, like um, I have a patient who lost uh, their job and I dropped their rate 30% because I, until they find another job because yeah. I, it's a little different. I do it because I, I want to keep doing it. I'm not really doing it. Yeah. You know, I have another job. It's just something I want to keep doing. Yeah. Um, so not everyone can do that. Um, but don't be afraid to negotiate and advocate. Um, the other thing is, I'm sorry that I'm having to say this because that's probably violating some ethics rules, but I think my higher ethical principles encourage me to say this. If you go to an LA County clinic, you can Google the one that's in your area. There's, they're all over. Uh, it's, uh, it's difficult. You're going to have to wait in line. It's going to take time. You're going to have to go through a bunch of steps, but if you are not making any money and they don't check that, uh, you will get in to be seen and they often have oh, cool. good practitioners, including student practitioners who people don't often want to see, but their outcomes in um, large studies are pretty good. So mm. because they're like enthusiastic, you know? Yeah. So um, that's L.A. County. That's L.A. Do County. Do other major cities have that? What if you're not near a major city? Man, I- I'm afraid I just, I don't know. I, I okay. know that la- landscape in LA County better. Yeah. Um, Are there any online resources or what do you think of these like um, apps about mental health and stuff like th- where you can cook up with a therapist, like think over apps or something? Yeah, I've seen them. I'm not aware of any research to support their effectiveness, although I imagine they're better than nothing. Do you think it's really important to be in a room with a person? Well, telehealth, there are telehealth studies and the outcomes are pretty good for like short term therapy. Okay. So, but that that's like video conferencing. Yeah. So I um, think that I want to say the apps are like that too. I think some do there. I think there's tiers. One is a text and one is. I've seen, I've seen someone use the kind for regular doctors and it's like kind of remarkable. you basically are FaceTiming with somebody yeah. and they say, let me see your rash or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you look, know? I think the, uh, on the, you know, honestly, um, the like, journey to wellness typically is not short so you're probably gonna have to try different things and i think that's worth a try again it's effectiveness you know so Um, and i know well how about if you're in crisis i would not recommend that i I would go the things the uh the app sort of just go fucking to get yeah yes um but but i think that's a better option than nothing and it may that may be enough for some people but again here's the thing to be careful about is i do don't think it's ethical practice to just be the person who's validating someone and watching them not work on any of their problems. Huh. Like, 
some what do you do in that as a friend or something if you if you if someone can't get through that step and you're like you just keep doing something some therapists you hurt do that i am not willing to do that so i will not I, I don't think it's ethical for me to be the pressure release valve that allows people to not make changes in their life you come uh-huh. to me once a week you blow off enough steam to keep doing the same behaviors for another week right. until the pressure builds back up and then you let it out with me if I see that pattern developing and we call it out and we try to troubleshoot and I get buy-in to work on it yeah. and there's still no change, I don't think it's ethical for me to keep taking that person's money. So I'm going to try to refer right. them to someone else, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, you have to be vigilant about that. Like, is that what the work that you're doing, you know, are the same like with patterns? with yourself, vigilant yeah. with yourself. Yeah. And, and with am, I, pra- am I feeling, is, is my function improving? Is this effective in making me feel better? Yeah. I mean, I, like I have another, like my, one of my very best friends here, one of the things I admire about him is he, he's not gone to see a therapist, but he relentlessly works on himself mm-hmm. through other practices, through other kind of like, yeah through like religion other ritual just like self-improvement well that that's a question that i would ask then also maybe for people that aren't as in crisis but also just for everybody i used to do this more regularly i would do like a piece of practical advice like something that worked for me like something you just yeah. do what do you um what do you i mean i think you said like before when we were off there we, yeah. we agree on physical stuff but well dude yeah. that i mean the thing that has kept me reasonably mm-hmm. <laughs> sane i guess uh, although certainly there are times when i by your subjective i mean there's more. no reality right we can agree on <laughs> yeah i mean to me uh like behaviors like eating healthy food trying to limit your mood altering substances and getting enough exercise so sleep diet and exercise Truly. those are Though I cannot emphasize enough how critical those are. And f- now it's very hard to do that. I mean, fuck, dude, it's super hard. Yeah, to get if you that don't stuff. have that habit. I, mean, I think once you get into it, it's hard to not do it. Like it's harder to, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, but for me, it's not a question of motivation now. It's just a habit. Right. I mean, and I think you know, I'm not the one to come up with that idea. Lots of people say this, like RP strength, all these people say this stuff. But motivation is not going to be what sustains habits, healthy habits, it's great to have motivation and if you have it, that's awesome. But what's going to sustain those habits is habit mm-hmm. <laughs> building habit and repetition over time. That's what sustains behavior. Change. But that those, those basic practical physical things try truly to sweat, do try to sweat for 20 minutes a day. If you can't do that, try to do 10 a couple times a week. Anything is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to eat in a healthy way and try to get a reasonable amount of sleep. Mm. And if you are not feeling good, try to stay off mood altering substances. Yes, there's evidence to show that psilocybin and I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yes, there's some very encouraging evidence to show that those can be helpful in a controlled environment. Yeah, but that's what I think is <laughs> therapists who are like modern day shamans is continuation of that sort of you know um, thread throughout human history. I think those are very exciting and interesting. Hmm. The total number of people they've been studied in is like less than 20. Okay. I saw that. Yeah. So very encouraging. I'm a huge fan of that research. Um, but like I hear people being like, oh, I have a medical card to smoke weed for my PTSD. Okay. Is that working? Is it, yeah. if it's working like reluctantly, I might say, okay. But, I smoke weed and I, I had a medical one prior dude, to whatever. I, I smoke weed every fucking day. But yeah. I, yeah. But I'm I think pretty it definitely healthy, does you know? help me manage some things. And I will say, um, I haven't drank this year. Like still like one, one time with miles cause or one, two times once with miles. Yeah. That was like a serious drinking thing. Cause it was this event and this yeah. ritual. It felt good. And I didn't miss it. It was fine. Yeah. But then once like one glass of wine with my, in Chicago with my uh, dad and my grandparents and it was, ho- it was a horrible, 
horrible idea. It was just like even just the one glass of wine. It was like it's so corrosive and truly a depressant. Um, it is a central nervous system depressant. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, look, yeah. Sometimes, but I mean. I don't know. Marijuana for me, it does help me manage some things. Sometimes I have to pay attention to it because there are times I'm using it to escape. But generally, yeah. I, I like the way it um, I for me, it helps me engage with mindfulness. It helps me like yep. observe my experiences in less judgmental ways. Look at them differently. And- yes, I agree. And it's different for everyone. So everyone responds to cannabinoids differently. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, but again, here's the thing. Like avoid them, though, if you feel that you're in a real. Well, be be your own. Imagine you're a Martian anthropologist and you know nothing about anything Mm -hmm. when you arrive here. Observe and describe your own experiences like that and fearlessly try to evaluate whether they're helping or hurting you. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. We have another uh, neighbor. uh, uh, Not neighbor. This one lives here. Hey, hey, Scardy. I'm finishing up a podcast. We're just uh, talking about, you know, good, bad brains. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. You're on it now. We're we'll we'll probably we've been going a little longer than I expected, but we'll we'll probably wrap it up in the next twenty. Yeah. All right. Um Yeah, so I think Martian. You, yeah, Martian anthropologist. So you, you have to like really again, I don't mean to suggest that like I'm so good at doing this. I just mm-hmm. think that like yeah. this is the good way to do it. Um is to really evaluate whether things are helpful or harmful for you. Like yeah. I know there are times when I've used substances in a way that's not healthy. Right. You know. Um, so I, I think, look, bottom line is it's free to do this, Mm -hmm. uh, which is to, uh, well, not, it's not free, but it's cheaper than therapy to try to eat in a healthy way, try to get some exercise and try to sleep well. And, and the best way to do that, to sustain the habit when you're not motivated is to fucking hang out with people that are doing that. Like we know that from research (laughs) that, that, that is one of those who are going to be like to call you up and be like, Hey man, let's go for a walk. Let's go to the gym. Let's do whatever. I think that like you're the sum, the average or whatever people around you kind of like, I do find that to be true that if there, if, if you're around people who are constantly like shooting down your attempts to improve your life, whatever that means, I think that's a real, I think that's a real environmental factor and, and it can make a difference being around people who are supportive one way or another it does and proactive. And I've never experienced ever someone asking me, Hey man, like I'm trying to get more healthy. Can I go to the gym with you? Or like, what do you eat? I've never had someone ask me that question and thought, what's wrong with them? <laughs> Everyone <laughs> I, loves to much tell more you. likely I, I make them regret asking real of quick. Course. I'm like, well, let me tell you, let's yeah. talk about this week. I'm doing keto. Right. How many, <laughs> Whatever. Right. how many hours do you have for me to, yeah. So, you know, I think, um, Tapping your network again and, uh, you know, um, trying to make some habit changes there um, can be really, really effective. Again, coming back to this effect in this thing. But, um, uh, yeah, the mental health care system, unfortunately, does not do a good job of taking care of people in the middle. And you have to, similar to, like, our healthcare system in general, you need and you need help to be... uh, your fiercest advocate because look, man, that's what it's going to take. You know, Mm -hmm. people are overworked. People are not calling you back. They need to remember your name, you know? Yeah. So you're going to have to take hours to advocate for yourself, unfortunately. Um, well, all right. I'm going to turn it on you a little bit. I think we'll just enter our little last phase. I think it'll be quicker than usual. Cause like I said, you're the first person I've had on who is a mental health professional and, Dude, I fucking love this. This was like this is so fun, man. Anytime I could do this, I was like, we just do a whole spinoff show, like just do a monthly check in with Doctor yeah. Nick or something. Yeah, anytime. Um, 
I'll try to actually remember them. I don't know why every time I get in the moment, I can't remember. But I do the six quick cues, oh, yeah. like little questions I like to ask at the end. Okay. The first one is always, have, do you have a, what do you struggle with, basically? Have you been diagnosed with anything? I know most of this is in the interest in like um, de-stigmatizing de or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But uh, do you, have you been diagnosed with any sort of mental stuff? And if not, like what is, what would you say, like what's your personal history with your... Yeah. Bad brain. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have a formal uh, diagnosis. Um, my family, uh, we we do have some uh, like a, I guess genetic loading for depression in the family. Mm. Um, uh, That's I a good term, genetic loading. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, and I'm, my, I'm, they wouldn't mind me saying, so I will. So my mom's been on antidepressants for probably twenty years. They've really helped her a lot. Mm. My sister is a physician, has been on and off antidepressant medication she's an extremely knowledgeable consumer obviously mm. of mental health services so she can kind of manage that and uses it uh, as needed yeah which is consistent with the research actually so what do you mean uh, i mean antidepressants were not studied or developed to be long-term treatments cool. although they have been effective for some people like that's my good mom, to know um but they were originally developed as relapse relapse prevention tools um following a major depressive episode and that's what oh. they're um uh, most robustly studied as, as wow. a relapse prevention tool. So that's good to know because I've, I've, I strum sometimes the way I like to think about my uh, medication use is even is like, cause I've only used it for the last year of my life is one of, um, I like, I think about it like using rubber bands to learn to do a pull up. Yeah. You know, that like, I'm hoping that I will eventually just, and let me just say, I don't want to go out of my lane here. I'm not a psychiatrist. So if people that. have, um, you know, questions about medication. They should really talk to a psychiatrist. There's a lot of good information out there. Um, but in consultation with a psychiatrist, I think people should not be afraid to talk about going off medication. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you have to have these other things in line. Is it a good time to go off medication when you're super fucking stressed, your diet's out of whack, you're not exercising, right. your sleep sucks? No, probably not. Well, that's that's funny because I'm, uh, uh, you know, not funny, haha. But um, for me, I found that the medications I took, which are, um, you know, an amphetamine, an ADHD, Adderall, yeah. basically, and uh, mirtazapine, this, uh, a, it's not an SSRI or an SNRI, it's a different kind of, it's Remeron, I think is the main, oh, yeah. uh, and antidepressant. Um, I found, uh, my a friend of mine described it the best way for himself uh, with his experience with medication, saying that it just allowed him to use the tools that he developed, that like, for me, it's been about, I've been better able to form habits that are starting to really stick after the year or so of trying to put them in, Yeah, that I know if I do them, I'm overall feel better, and if I don't do them, I don't. Do you know what I mean? Like, they yes. were a bridge that just enabled me to start to put in some more permanent structures I feel like I mean again I am like I I preach the gospel of effectiveness if it gotcha is working That's so good. if it is working then you should do it <laughs> I also I do I want to just reiterate I think that 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 very low key is a genetic loading I think yeah. that's a great way because I uh, have a, a, I, you know usually I just say I have a history of stuff in my family I, I've got all this you know but I think just calling it genetic loading takes a lot more of the value off it that yeah. like you are just just it's something to be almost like being mindful about your um, subjective experiences. Yeah. Just being aware that you have the markers or the predisposition or the presence in your yep. lineage and not feeling like that's my legacy. You know what I mean? That's who I am out no, of my control. I mean, you know, these these factors, um, even in twin studies. So people who share the same genetic material mm -hmm. like in schizophrenia twin studies. 
I think it's something like 50% of the variance is, or it might be a little more than that, but that's like you share the same fucking gene right. and only less than, than all of the variance is explained by the genetic, uh, shared genetic heritage. So that means there's a ton of epigenetic wow. yeah. environmental stuff going on. Epigenetics, so, isn't it? Uh, my layman's understanding of epigenetics is like a genetic factor that turns on or off based on environmental stimulus. Exactly right. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. All right. I pay attention sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in terms of my own stuff, yeah, I'm, I've never had a huge amount of anxiety, although everyone has it for me. It's much more like, um, I guess what you would consider more like depressive symptoms, like isolation behavior, um, you know, shame and guilt, like mm-hmm. not wanting to disclose vulnerabilities, yeah. needing to project this like, uh, sort of like competence in all things uh, so did being that a come man through? in the western <laughs> civilization yeah yeah i think also America. you know like my dad died when i was 21 and i didn't want to upset my mom so i just like never yeah. talked about any problem i ever had ever again you know everything was always fine so i think that's uh you know part of that is is kind of something i have to keep an eye on well the next question is always uh primarily focused on like what medications you may have tried or substances first and then after that like what helps you like what therapies have you tried and yeah so i've never been on any psychiatric medications although i've certainly done a lot of drugs i think um like all kinds of drugs i've done all the drugs except for uh amphetamine and uh heroin Got it. Um, although, you know, now what we call ecstasy is God knows what the fuck that is. Yeah. Molly, Molly ecstasy, unless you have a chem kit, you don't, we really don't know what's in it. But as people probably know, I mean, MDMA is methyl dioxymethamphetamine. So it's, it is an amphetamine derivative. Yes. Yes. This is the most, it's like, it, it's, like place whole, it's crazy. <laughs> it's been three fucking times. It's amazing. That's great. Anyway, I might um, actually try to cut some of them out, but maybe not. It kind of creates a vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I did it. <laughs> uh, it's a nice community here. Yeah. It's really but, hilarious. Um, but, but look, when it, and I, I've, I do smoke weed regularly. Uh-huh. I don't drink that much. It just makes my body feel bad. I don't like how I feel. I hate, yeah. I hate being hungover. I, now that I've got, yeah, especially like getting older. You yeah. really I mean, I did up. obviously a lot more in college. Like yeah. The year after my dad died, I wasn't sober at all, but mm. then I moved to India and lived in a, the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics for six months. So that kind of dried me out. Oh, that's a life changer. That, that's where I learned Buddhism. Yeah. It yeah. Did, it did. Do you, do you feel you practice Buddhism? Now? I don't like when white people say they practice Buddhism, but, uh-huh. but I have a personal meditation practice that I, do a more or less okay job with depending on when it is in my life. And I think that the, um, epistemology and ontology of the strain of Buddhism that I'm familiar with, which is Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Um, I find it to be, to me, logically unassailable. I mean, it is a system of philosophy. Can you, can you say epistemology and, um, what was the other one you said? Ontology. Ontology (laughs) in, um, human terms. Yeah. So ontology (laughs) is like the, um, kind of uh philosophy of how things are like yeah. being ontology is yeah yeah, yeah. And epistem- epistemology is um philosophy of knowledge got it so the way that uh knowledge is constructed and the way that um uh knowledge is used to build a picture of reality mm-hmm. um using uh the syllogism which which is like lo- a, a series of logical propositions mm-hmm. right if um all birds have wings and uh, a starling is a bird, then a starling has wings. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, so Ooh, that's an Aristotelian, yeah. that is an Aristotelian oh, syllogism, cool. but the Buddhists There's invented their own syllogism, syllogism mm. um, which includes an example. So, um, What's the example of that one? Oh man, it would be something like, um, 
if you can predict uh, a cause from its consequences uh, and uh, fire causes smoke, then by observing smoke, you can infer fire. That's all, it's just almost like the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, That's Sorry, cool. if there are any like Geshe's or like Buddhist studies PhDs out there that want to correct me on that, I'm, I'm <laughs> well, willing I mean, to hear and, it. You know, those words like I've, I used epistemolo- epistemological or whatever, ontological uh, and I feel like even I sometimes I'm like, well, I mean, kind of way I was like epigenetics. Like I'll say that a lot and I just want to make sure. Yeah. So, so basically it's like a way of understanding reality, which is ontology. I, it's just, I just feel like there's, I, I think the reason I'm pointing out is just like code switching or something that there's like, I love language so much. It's like my favorite thing, like words and poems and my whole yeah. life and nothing makes me madder than like grammar Nazis. Like people oh. want to get in the way of communication. Yeah. And sometimes I think like on the one hand, yes, like academia and like a lot of these, a lot of uh, vocabulary is makes sense. Cause you're looking for precision and like, how can we describe things? But I don't like when it becomes like a barrier. Dude, totally. Yeah. I think it's only useful when it advances understanding. It's not useful when it obfuscates understanding. Right. So, so yeah. So basically what I like about, um, what I what it really appeals to me about Buddhism uh, and what appealed to me so much when I was at the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics was the logical rigor, like the the logical rigor of reaching that's demanded to reach and defend a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no soft thinking allowed. I mean, they really have uh, the way they debate, like the way you get a Geshe degree, which is like in Tibetan Buddhism is a like a, the equivalent of like a PhD, although it takes much longer is you read and memorize the entire canon of Tibetan Buddhist texts. And mm. then you sit in front of a three judge panel and they will throw out a proposition and you have to quote the text that it's from and defend it while they attack it that's from memory wild in front of people so i mean huh. it demands this kind of um facility with complex logical argument that i think you know apropos of our discussion with of these devices we just don't have anymore but anyway it's the, hmm. the yeah so i i definitely still smoke weed but i'll tell you what man when I'm, <laughs> after all that so yeah i still <laughs> definitely smoke weed <laughs> which the which my uh teachers would not have uh, been thrilled about but, um, it, it, yeah, here's the thing. Like when I'm not feeling good, I try to stop doing that stuff because it, it doesn't, it helps me get to sleep if I'm feeling a little, you know, worked up about things. Yeah. But, um, the things that really help me are physical exercise, eating well and getting to sleep. Honestly, yeah. and those are the things that help me the most. And medita- your meditation practice, mindfulness. That fucking, I noticed the difference. Yeah. Uh, big time. All right. The third question is, what's something cheesy that you find inspiring? Oh, man. Let's see. Um, dude, I read like a ton of science fiction. Like I'm a Same. huge sci-fi Oh, I have a book for you then. Nerd. After this, yeah, I'll please. suggest that. Yeah, You'll probably yeah. like it because we're probably similar a little bit. Yeah. So um, I get like, I get inspired by like weird science fiction concepts. Give me one. Give me one. Okay, so same, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay, so like I, one series that I come back to over and over is Octavia Butler's, um, uh, oh God, what is, I can't remember the name of the trilogy, but it's it's basically when the uh, Owen Kali aliens come to Earth and like rescue uh, Mm. humanity and kind of like retool their genetics a little bit. Uh And they um, end up, like requiring 
in order for humans to procreate the presence of one of the Owen Kali to be there. So like it turns all <laughs> mm-hmm. human partnerships into like these weird alien threesomes. Oh, cool. And like yeah, that. I just, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think like my initial response to that is like, Ooh, what? No, like that's not tentacles. What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, tentacles are involved yeah. now. Got it. Yeah. There are tentacles. Yes. Yeah, so, um, but I like, feeling stuff like that. Like I like reading books where I have kind of this weird, visceral, unexamined response, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so you took that. It's not really like cheesy. You find inspiring. It's like something that's like quote unquote, like not academic or something, not like yeah. respectable quote unquote, but that you get true, like valid experience. Yeah, I, mean, I don't on. know if it's as cheesy. Like I watch, I'm like a, we were talking about combat sports earlier. Like I watch, I buy all the UFC pay-per-views. Like I really? fucking love that shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, I, I not think that might count. Either. I follow some, uh, some fighters on Instagram and stuff like that who, the one I'm thinking of right now is like, it's weird, man. I'm sure you feel this way too. Like, uh, like, like athletes and fighters, so many of them, like politically, I really disagree with oh, so God, much. I feel I so like brainless sometimes, but like, um, there's things about their quality of being that is so inspiring. Like Mike Perry, dude, Mike Perry cracks me up. But I he follow, says some I horrible Mike things. Perry, uh, I feel Mike Chandler. He just got his arm snapped by Cowboy Cerrone. And maybe he deserved it. I don't know. But, well, um, it was a great, I mean, talk about like a nice, Sharani seems like uh, okay from the limited stuff I've yeah. heard him talk about. But there's a guy like Mike Chandler, and there's like these videos of like there'll be like some yeah, like somebody talking over him while he's like inspiring shit, and I'm like, hell yeah, it gets me fired the fuck up. <laughs> fuck yeah, uh, just for the day, you know. The yeah. third one, which is kind of related, I guess, uh, you was like, is what's or the fourth one rather, what's something dark about you? And uh, you know, this is a little divulgy, yeah. I guess. But I was like it because we always stay in the light areas of people, and I think we all have dark shit in us. And you can decide; you don't have to be like crazy dark if you want. Yeah, but. yeah. Um, well, this is like related to kind of I think what I was talking about earlier. It's very difficult for me to be like vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always been hard for me. So this is a, a hard question. Um, I think if I can stay like a little bit oblique about things. That's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think something that I've, it's weird. I, I feel like, um, you know, like my, all my professional life and career has been like in what's called in like a quote unquote helping profession, like trying to fucking help people. Yeah. But I, I, something I really don't like about myself is that I think I can sometimes be selfish, emotionally selfish. Hmm. Um, you mean like an interpersonal relationship yeah, and stuff like that? Yeah, and yeah. I think I give myself permission to do that sometimes tacitly because I'm like a good person because of my oh, work. Oh, because you're doing good stuff elsewhere. Yeah, that. yeah, and that's like... Yeah, that's really, interesting. Well, I, I just that, think I it's also mean. really fucked up, you know? It's like a, such a bullshit excuse. So. You're creating like a balance sheet for yourself that's like... Yeah, well, it's just like doing the opposite of what I said we need to do to be healthy, which is to like fearlessly evaluate what's causing the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so very that, honest that, of you. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wonder, I mean, that's I something feel I work like, on, I'm, I'm working on. That's it. a tough idea too, though. Uh, especially in our culture again, like around the shame and stuff like that, where like, I, I feel like, um, some of things, especially if you're trying to help other people in your personal life where they seem to have problems and they can't get past their like acceptance and validation phase where like, I think, uh, I do think it's important. It's a new thing I've been learning about is like boundaries. And it's hard to sometimes figure out like where boundaries are and where selfishness is. You know what I'm saying? It's very difficult. Yeah. And boundaries are super fucking important for yeah. interpersonal relationships. Um, and I think I started like way on 
too far on the no boundary side, you know, yeah, like when too. I was just learning and I still, have, I still struggle. Yeah. Well, I, I don't so much anymore. Okay. I mean, um, I think I, think I went good. too far on the other side. Yeah. In some cases. I don't um, know. Sometimes you have to in the glow, in the scheme of like tacking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, very often that's like the way learning happens, right? Is you go from one extreme and right. you f- go all the way to the other and then eventually you move towards like the synth- right. synthesis. Yeah. But yeah, that's something I don't like about myself that mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm working on. Yeah. Uh, what's the last gorgeous thing you saw? My ex-girlfriend, man. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's the answer? Real Dude, talk. I love that you go from like, I really have difficulty opening up to like, that's so honest. I mean, Beautiful, it sucks, though. but that's real. Yeah. We, I don't want, we don't have to get that into that. How long, when did you guys break up? Uh, is it like recent or is it just like, it hurts? It's, it's pretty recent yeah pretty recent i'm sorry man no that's okay i didn't know that we i saw her recently so that's, yeah. that's okay i try not to uh i try not to make these like therapy they're, they're no, no, they've always right. been discussions for people so i don't yeah. mean to dig in but that's yeah. uh that's kind of dope to, i think that's to, also cool it's very poetic well that's real man but also that uh donald Cerrone, Cerrone armbar from guard was pretty beautiful too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, either my ex-girlfriend or this guy gets fucking arm ripped off <laughs> I appreciate that uh, more than I could ever describe. Honestly, I appreciate that. Um, all right. Oh, yeah. The last one. I don't know why I'm looking at my phone like I don't know. Uh, this is the easiest one. I have this thing. I'll the don't kill yourself list. I yeah. started it for myself when I was in a really dark time in my life. Yeah. It always starts with coffee sandwiches and lavender soap. But oh. they're like things that are accessible, that are like delightful, usually sensual for me, but they can be, you know, more abstract. And uh, and I just like, please add something to the don't kill yourself list. A, a reason objective to your experience reasons to stay alive you know <laughs> yeah man i guess this is kind of like things that i look forward to i guess yeah um so yeah i just i think for me it's like i think uh and i've never gotten to talk to like a, a someone who works in the field about this like we were talking about this whole long discussion of it's very hard to actually get help it's a lot of work it's a lot of things yeah, it is. sometimes for me it just helped to have like these little footholds these little things and i almost as a meditative practice i'd be like Yes, I use incense now sometimes. Just Dude. like the lavender soap and coffee every day. And those are undeniable realities for me. So look, like as a, a true therapist, I'm going to like um, tack a little bit away from myself and talk about That's like, fine. So like one of the things we encourage people to do in DBT is to create a like a distress tolerance toolkit, which puts all you put all the things in that like make you feel good. So. I'm listening to Rosalia, who's like a flamenco, nuevo flamenco oh. singer right wow, now. She won the Latin dope. Grammy last year. Oh my God. Well, I'll play a song for you. Like, okay. She's fucking incredible. Yeah. So like that music is a big one for me. Like if I just put on music that, that will help me. Um, coffee is another one. So mm-hmm. I go to sleep, like thinking about the smell of that in the it, morning. Right. It's like a reason to go to bed. So Dude, a super it. hot, long shower. Uh, I really like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think those are... And like a really good uh, workout that that. What's your favorite? Like, what's your go-to workouts kind of things these days? Um, Because we met was CrossFitty. Yeah, I mean, I don't do like just because I have injuries to manage, so I kind of like do my own. (laughs) I think CrossFit will hurt everybody eventually. (laughs) I mean, it can be great for people. I think CrossFit is something that you do for a while. Like, you do it the way you do 
drugs for a while. Dude, also, have you ever met like a competitive CrossFit athlete? Like the mm-hmm. most boring fucking person I've ever met. Well, I mean, and I'm not going to turn this into a shit talk CrossFit no, no, session. Right. I want to. Because, <laughs> no, I no. mean, as no, I somebody, don't want to talk shit. It's done amazing. Certified. I got, well, I was. I don't think it's good anymore. Yeah. But all that fucking bullshit. Yeah, most CrossFit coaches are glorified camp counselors, and it's in, and they're just like, get under it, hip drive. They're like, who don't appreciate their natural gifts and that they did college athletics and need someplace else to go now, and they're teaching people, quote unquote. Dude, I mean, I won't name names, but I remember I went to my cert, uh, my you know, yeah. and the second day is the day of the written test, yeah. and there was somebody there who I knew from the community, uh, whatever, who's like kind of a one of those athlete celeb types yeah, yeah. and they were kind of incognito and like had like a hat on because they needed to take that test again <laughs> and you're just like it's not a hard test it's not yeah. a hard test coach yeah you know yeah. and they just didn't want anyone to know they're there um that's like crossfit not to mention crossfit's a bizarro like political stance that they take so often it's i very know weird. it's uncomfortable but um, so so it Still, but, but speaking d- more objectively, just frankly, too much internal rotation, uh, an, an uneducated linear, approach to intensity, linear motion only, yeah, no, no progression. Uh, yeah. yeah no. So <laughs> programming is just like, what the fuck is programming? Yeah. I, I just think there's so many good resources out there that, you know, people need to be more flexible about things. Um, but honestly now I'm other than like popping my rib every now and then like jujitsu has been, um, I mean, I feel like every fucking white belt says this, but like, mm-hmm. it's totally life-changing, bro. It fucking is, bro. <laughs> you know? It really it is. is. I yeah. think it really is. I think it stays with you. I, I say this a uh, bunch now too, that like, I, I don't think I'm ever not doing jiu-jitsu now. Like, I think it's a part of my life and my mindset yeah. and my approach yeah. to like my mental wellness, my spiritual wellness. And even, uh, and even I'm realizing more and more in a literal sense, like I'll come back. I hadn't trained in like weeks really like you know a while and i can drop right back in with all the other yeah. brown belts and pearl belts and stuff like no prob and um i think it's because i'm thinking about it a lot yeah i think it's like nice to see that like mind physical connection you know yes totally um i also yeah i mean i still lifting weights is like just something i hope to do forever i find it yeah. to be like so therapeutic and I don't know if fun's the right word. It's just like necessary for me. Yeah. Um, Does something. Yeah. But there is something really cool about jujitsu because it's like, all right, like who fucking cares how much weight you can lift if I can take your back and fucking choke you? Well, I will say we we were talking a little bit um, off, uh, off mic about this, about like body culture stuff. And I will say that when I'm doing jujitsu or fight sports in general, actively, I feel way less bad about my body and physical sense of self and everything than I do when I'm just lifting and dieting. Do you know what I mean? A hundred percent. Yeah. I'd, I also, again, to like, like I barely think about it cause I'm like, yeah. I don't, I don't, I barely think about what I look like cause I'm just thinking about what I can do. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, totally. Mm. I think that's the super cool thing about it. Yeah. I think it's actually weirdly related thematically to our whole thing about like a focus on, uh, effectiveness. Like, 100%. like there's, there's no weird subjective space of like, am I, is this working or not? Is this good for me or not? Is this good or bad? It's like, does it work or not? Dude? Yeah. I mean like, it Does doesn't it matter feel, what I yeah. look like when I just got tapped by that skinny guy and I just got tapped by that fat guy. Yeah. Who, you know, like I think that's a really beautiful experience too of like, it is, there's like a Joe Rogan clip or something somewhere, but he is right that like the idea of getting in a fight also is just the stupidest fucking thing. And you only have to spend like, <laughs> 
a week in combat sports to realize you can't assess anyone from right. what they look like. You can't. Like you meet these people who just look like little dweebs and they will beat the life out of you yeah. and you will never get good enough to, to <laughs> stop them. Yeah, you know dude. what I mean? Like some people yeah. are just natural savages but yeah. just combatants it's weird it makes me feel like there really is like like classes in a in a rpg like you totally. know what i mean like some people were just born barbarians and some yep. people were born shamans and some people were born mages and that's how it is <laughs> that's how it is yeah no that, right. it is really funny yeah, that's true uh thanks man this has been one no, of my favorite you. ones in a while oh, i really appreciate it do you want to say maybe find you anywhere you want to be anywhere public oh um i mean i don't really know like if, you, if anyone has a question or they want to talk about this stuff i, I also am happy to like help uh, people find resources like yeah. if they're going through it so they could get me at uh, Dr. Nicholas Barr at gmail.com but oh that's very nice of you cool yeah that that's my professional but not work email cool. um, yeah I don't really have like C-H? a N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S cool. yeah B-A-R-R Killer, oh, that's weird the two the double R thing yeah like I've, Roseanne I've, but not yeah. related yeah. well well okay that's good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I really appreciate. It. I think this has been one of my favorite ones in a while. I think oh, this is really helpful. Dude. Yeah, it's really. I seriously me. feel like I haven't had really repeat guests, but I feel like we could do like recurring segments with Doctor Nick. Anytime, man. All I, right. I loved it, dude. Thanks. All right. Talk to you guys later. Uh, be well. Bye. That was my good bad brain. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, and gals and every other identifying thing in between. Uh, if you like us, check us out at patreon.com slash mygoodbadbrain. It's just a way to give money to the pod. There's not uh, like any sort of exclusive stuff going on right there right now, but it does support it and keep it going. Um, also, uh, review us if you like it. You know, that helps a lot. Five stars, preferably. I mean, whatever is honest, but, you know, keep it good. All right, thanks. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 